good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking dead baby jokes. We're talking about the strangest people coming up with the most interesting ideas. And we're talking Rosie fucking Perez. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Fuck Batman. <laughs> it was one of like 25 different Rosie Perez lines that I, I knew you were going to pick from. I have, yeah, I, I, I knew from the moment I first saw this movie, whenever we covered this, which I knew I'd make us cover, I'm doing Fuck Batman. But everyone, <laughs> we are discussing Alex de la Iglesia's Perdita Durango, which um, I'm willing to bet 95% of you have never heard of. Uh, yeah, it seems like a fair bet. Either <laughs> that or maybe we have listeners from Spain who are big fans since he is one of their big time film directors maybe maybe so and of course if uh, if you're a big fan of hbo's 30 coins um he is the creator of that but uh mm-hmm. if you're starting this and you're like what is it um go to shutter and it's there and you can watch it yeah and folks if you have not watched this and you did not listen to the end of last week's episode mm-hmm. we are giving a content warning there is uh i mean honestly not the worst that we've ever seen but we'll still say there is sexual assault in this film sexual assault that it has a stockholm syndrome component to it that yes. i think uh, adds a few more complicated moral layers to it right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh boy but no i i am so 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 excited to discuss this movie everyone uh but because it's just me and joe well it's not me and joe we're gonna bring in someone else because i think we need to have someone to talk about this uh admittedly pretty lengthy movie Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, she is the festival director of Salem Horror Fest and the producer of the upcoming documentary Mental Health and Horror, as well as the upcoming queer horror film Saint Drogo from the creators of Death Drop Gorgeous, which we covered earlier this year. You may have also heard her on our episode on Copycat from way back in 2020. Please welcome Kay Lynch. Ooh. It's your lucky day, sweetheart. Don't blow it by asking stupid questions. hello i'm so fucking excited oh welcome back hey i'm so excited to have you here (laughs) oh my god you too you too i'm doing the spanish flea dance oh my god (laughs) you know it's so funny because um so i programmed this because i i it's not like a spiritual successor or a sequel to Freeway, which we covered last year for my birthday pick, but I kind of put it in the same ballpark of uh, content and maybe tone a little bit. And I thought, after I saw how much you loved this movie when you saw it last year, I was like, we have to have Kay on this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I, yeah, I was, Trace, I was so excited to, one, well, you got me to watch Freeway, and I absolutely loved it. And then when I saw Perdita Durango, I was like, Trace is going to love this. And you did. <laughs> And both you and I were like, I wonder what Joe's gonna think. <laughs> Which I, I have, I have no idea what Joe thought of this movie yet. So we're gonna find out in real time together during this episode. But I will say that I think with listeners, if you didn't listen to the episode on Freeway last year, I definitely walked into that very much like a who wouldn't like this movie? Who would be offended? It's so fun. Right. It's so dark. And. <laughs> 
and Joe like had had struggles with it, and so I wanted to program this um, not not as a um, well, how do you think about this episode? But more of a, again, a companion piece to talk about these things that, um, I mean, again, like, there's some difficult and moral gray areas in this movie. And I want to maybe hand a little bit better than I did last year in that Freeway episode, because now I'm aware. Oh, right. Some people will be, like, not okay with some of this stuff. That's true. You're you're very much on a learning journey of not everyone thinks the way that Trace thinks. Yes. And sometimes <laughs> that's a good thing. And other times you're like, no, I'm going to gently push you out of your comfort zone. And yeah. by you, I mean, you're saying that to me a lot of the time. <laughs> well, but- <laughs> We both do it to each other, and that's why we're so great together. I at least have Kay here uh, in my corner this time. <laughs> this is true, yes. and I think that this is very much an episode that's going to benefit from having a third person in the room. Because here, I will lay my cards on the table flat out. I actually like this less than Freeway, but not for the same reasons. I just didn't connect with this movie at all. Interesting. Well, we're definitely going to dive into that. But you're not going to be alone in that, Joe. This is a, I think it's a very polarizing movie, and I do think we're going to have some people that, again, like, this is a, I'll call it a rough watch sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So, so Kate, how did you come across this movie, by the way? Because I, I only heard about it because I had a friend bring it over when Severn dropped their Blu-ray and 4K set on it, and I'd never heard of it. And I'm like, all right, well, I wrote myself into a movie night, and I, with this, where we all pick a movie, and we all show one. So I was stuck watching this two-hour and ten-minute movie that I'd never heard of, and I loved it. I bought the Blu-ray, like, in the middle of watching it. <laughs> 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 but how, how did you come across this? So I don't know. It was the Severn release, but I don't. Mm-hmm. But I I did a blind buy of of both this film and the 4K of uh, Day of the Beast, the other Alex de la Iglesias film that Severn restored and released. So I don't remember what gave me the confidence to buy both of those films. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard very little about them. But mm-hmm. I think the fact that, you know, the the cover of Perdita Durango just kind of had this, you know, the six sexy lady with guns. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a vibe. Hey, yeah, yeah. that works. That works. <laughs> have you actually because I have not seen Day of the Beast. Have you seen it since you bought it? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, a couple times. It's really, really good. Good. Yeah, it's on my list. I have learned, um, I've watched a couple of Alex De La Iglesia films this year, and I did start 30 Coins um, last night. Uh, and I have learned that um, he is very much uh, almost like a more provocative, well, mm, I, must, I say that loosely, because hmm. he is a protege of Pedro Almodovar. And it, it's a thing where he deals with very sensitive and taboo subject matters, um, a bit more exploitation-y than Pedro Almodovar does. But uh, I like both of them, and I liken them to each other. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, well, okay, so let's 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 just jump right into this because, uh, yeah, there's a uh, this movie. Everyone has not really been easily available in the United States uh, for almost the 25 years since it came out. So let's uh, let's go into this. And also, pretty much all of my information came from this Severin Films 4K release. This was the first time that the uncut version of the film, uh, heretofore known as the Spanish version, had been released in the United States uh, almost 25 years after its initial release. Uh, information came from interviews with the director himself, Fela Iglesia, screenwriter Barry. Gifford, composer Simon Boswell, as well as journalist and academic Rebecca McKendry. First of all, this is based on a book, so let's get this book stuff out of the way really quickly. Perdita Durango is a side character in Barry Gifford's 1990 novel, Wild at Heart, and that novel follows star-crossed lovers Sailor and Lula as they go on the run from Lula's jealous mother. Uh, At the end of the book, Perdita shows up as the girlfriend, maybe prostitute, of a hitman. Gifford thought that she was such a strong character that he decided to just give her her own book, making 
making Wild at Heart's first of six sequels, 59 Degrees and Raining, The Story of Perdita Durango, released in 1991 and 120 pages in length. Wow, I had no idea that Wild at Heart was actually like a book franchise. I knew that it was like Lynch's film was based on a book, but I didn't realize it was its own kind of mini empire. Very much so. But here's the thing, though, with those books. So six of them were released between 1990 and 1992. Uh, So they're all short then. Very short. And then the seventh and final one was released in 2009. Okay. Hmm. That's a long period. (laughs) It's kind of weird, too, because the characters of Sailor and Lula are not in Perdita Durango. So he just like, you know, went off on his own and did this book. All of the other sequels are about Sailor and Lula, and Perdita's not involved in them. So, of course, everyone, Wild at Heart was adapted into a movie by David Lynch, starring Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. Lynch famously changed the ending of, the, of Wild at Heart, because in Wild at Heart, they don't get back together. They split up. Uh, Nicolas Cage's character leaves. And he changed that in the movie to where they got back together. And I think after the six, or not really success, but the reception of that film, I think that convinced Gifford to bring them back together for future books. Makes sense. People like a happy ending. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But in that movie, uh, Perdita Durango does make an appearance, played by Isabella Rossellini. And there's seven years of difference between these two films. And, you know, I mean, it's not the first time we've seen something like this, right? Like uh, Tommy Lee Jones is playing the same Harvey Dent as Billy D. Williams in the Batman movies. Or uh, Mm -hmm. more recently, we have uh, um, the Holly Gibney character from... Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes, who's played by Justine Loop and Mr. Mercedes, but Cynthia Erivo in HBO's The Outsider, right? Interesting racial angles here. Um, yeah. Well, yes. Also, Isabella Rossellini is an Italian woman playing a Mexican woman mm-hmm. <laughs> in Wild at Heart. <laughs> yeah, that, that's basically what I'm referring to, considering <laughs> when we get to Perdita Durango, it's very obviously, well... I say very obviously, it is clearly making some kind of commentary on, you know, race relations between the US and Mexico. Just a little bit. Also, no. So Isabel Rossellini was dating David Lynch at the time. So it, it has been speculated that Barry Gifford was like, hmm, if I give her her own movie, maybe that will up the chances of them making and adapting another one. Right. So that's just speculation. But... I could see it. I could see it. That's all we can do at this point, right? And I mean, granted, Barry Gifford would go on to co-write Lost Highway with David Lynch, which would actually come out the same year as Perdita Durango. Hmm. There's not really any like connective narrative thread, though, between the two films. So if you've never seen Wild at Heart, don't worry. You can walk into Perdita Durango totally blind and it won't make a difference. But honestly, if you want to know the way that ends, basically Perdita's hitman boyfriend, played by Willem Dafoe, accidentally blows his own head off with a shotgun during a botched robbery. So she hightails out of town and that is the last we see of her, at least until Perdita Durango. Right. There are a few other crossover characters as well. So, like, Marcella Santos, the drug lord, is in that movie. Um, uh, uh, Romeo's cousin Reggie's in that movie. Perdita's sister Juana, who is dead for most of Perdita Durango, is played by Grace Zabriskie, a white woman in Wild at Heart. <laughs> yeah. The 90s were a wild and different time. <laughs> Yes. So back to Perdita's adaptation. So Spanish producer Andres Vicente Gomez reached out to Barry Gifford saying that he wanted to buy the rights to the novel, but he didn't want Gifford to have any say or input in the production. Just take the money and leave. (laughs) Please leave. We do not want your input. Goodbye. And so Gifford's like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll take the money. Like, whatever. Because it was a really good sum of money. But here's the thing. 
Three weeks later, Gomez comes back and goes, hey, I actually want you to write the screenplay. (laughs) I can't crack it, actually. Uh, Can you come back and do this for me? Thank you so much. (laughs) At the time, Spanish director Bigas Luna, fresh off directing two Javier Bardem starring films, Hamon Hamon and Huevos de Oro, which is gold eggs, but it translates into English as gold balls. Um, Yes. So... There's that. Uh, he was attached to direct the film, and that's how Bardem became attached initially. Unfortunately, though, Luna wanted to have a pseudo-military aspect because he viewed Romeo as a political character. At that time, the Mexican insurgent nicknamed Subcomandante Marcos was very popular, so he wanted to kind of model Romeo after him, making him a revolutionary working against the American invaders. And... Hmm. Gomez didn't like that. And I, again, I don't know why, but my speculation is because it gives Romeo a moral compass. Right. And potentially makes him a more relatable character. Mm-hmm. Which he is definitely not supposed to be. <laughs> right. So Luna was fired from the project and it was dormant for a bit. Enter Pedro Almodovar. He comes in, wanted to direct the film, but he wanted to buy the rights from Gomez and have his production company use it so he could have total control. Gomez said no, so Almodovar, again, was out. Mm-hmm. And I really want to know what an Almodovar-directed movie version of this would have looked like. <laughs> uh, probably like an early Almodovar film, to be honest, because he, he made stuff that isn't that dissimilar from this, but ooh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I think it would have been shot better. <laughs> I'll take issue with that. <laughs> okay. I think that you can't really compare it because I think that what Inglesias' intention was is to make a, a comic book, like a live action comic book. And I think that that right. has a very specific look and feel, like the high contrast and a lot of how the shots are composed. So I think they're, they would be attempting to do different things with the style. Right. You are correct, Kay. And Joe, but to, to, to your credit, um, Gifford did not like that. Um, Gifford did not like the comic book style <laughs> that Dylan Iglesias was going to do. He he really was kind of like, oh, you kind of made this more lowbrow th- than what I would have done with it. Right, which is actually very in keeping with Dilla Iglesias. And yeah, Kay will acknowledge that he has a background in writing comics, so that totally tracks. Yes, very much so. So yeah, basically what Almodovar left, we they bring in Alex de la Iglesia. And again, he was a protege of Amadovar's, again, mostly well known for being a comic book writer. But at the time, he had only made two films, both of which were dark horror comedies. So we have 1993's Mutant Action, which is a trauma-ish X-Men tale. And then, as we've mentioned, 1995's Day of the Beast, which I didn't know what this movie was about. I'd only heard that it was, you know, something I, I've been told to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone, this is a movie about a priest who believes he's hunting down the Antichrist, but in order to get to the Antichrist, he has to commit as many sins as he possibly can, so he teams up with a psychic and a metalhead to do so. Make of that what you will. <laughs> it's kind of, it's it's sort of like, um, kind of like Fright Night in a way, with like the horror host and kind of like the, you know, reading the reality or, or uncovering the fantasy in reality. But is it super sacrilegious? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's... It's a, co- a comedic film, so I don't think it was taken too seriously. Mm, I mean, well, again, when we talk in a, when we talk about his body of work, and especially when we start talking about this film, it is that comedy that I think makes uh, why the reception of this was kind of mixed. Because this movie actually didn't get a very good reception, but I will wait until we get to that section. 
that being said, 30 coins, those 30 coins, it's religious. Uh, it's about the 30 coins that were paid to Judas to help betray Jesus. And that, there's a lot of stuff in there that is very sacrilegious, but also very, very, very interesting. So I like that De La Iglesia at least tackles these subjects um, right. with kind of without a care for what anyone thinks about it. <laughs> Yeah. In this film, too, because we see, you know, a Mm -hmm. graphic depiction of the crucifixion, of, you know, Jesus's crucifixion. (laughs) Yes. Not expecting that. Was not expecting it. Which actually, so the opening credit sequence of 30 coins is Jesus's crucifixion. So he's really got a fixation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, Spain, man. Yeah. Exactly. So while Iglesia would go on to do a few Hollywood films, like, uh, it, it, the only one that I even knew of was The Oxford Murders, which is uh, Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen. His main body of work are mainly horror comedies with these heavy, violent, controversial edges. And I, again, Perdita Durango, not really a horror film. Again, we're kind of in that freeway area of just like exploitation, but it's more of a, I would say probably an action comedy hybrid film. It's like 12 different genres, <laughs> which it doesn't want to commit to. And that definitely seems purposeful. Yeah. So Gifford knew nothing of Iglesias' work. So they showed him Day of the Beast and he was like, yeah, I like it. It has a unique visual sense. But again, he didn't like that comic book mentality. I uh, didn't think it jive with his writing or his way of doing things. But unfortunately for Gifford, he had no control over the project by that time. So when Alex really took over, he went back to Gifford's screenplay to rework it because he thought it was too faithful to the book. So Iglesia brings in screenwriter David Treba, who wrote a script that Iglesia loved. The one aspect that he added that is the reason he was like, yeah, we're going to do this, was the opening sequence with the Jaguar dream and uh, pulling uh, the sheet off Rosie Perez's nude body. Hmm. Overall, though, the film is actually a... A more faithful than most adaptations that yes. I've that I've seen. Like there, there's um the main plot elements are the same. All of the characters are the same. How the characters are portrayed are the same. There's just some minor details here and there that are different. And of course, with the film, it's really comes down to the style and editing, which kind of right. changes things up a little bit. So. They have that, but then Iglesia also has a regular writing partner. And y'all, I am going to try to get this name right. I'm going to try it once, but here we go. Iglesia's regular screenwriting partner is Jorge Guerica Echavarria. And he actually co-writes every episode of 30 Coins with him, by the way, too. But basically, actually all of his films, he's co-wrote with this man. Mm -hmm. But he brought him in to incorporate a lot of stuff that they knew from the border of Mexico that they didn't feel Gifford understood or even included in his screenplay. So it's those more... I guess I'm going to say authentic touches that, that that they wanted to add in. But they're from Spain, so they wouldn't necessarily yeah. inherently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they thought they had more experience with the Mexican and U.S. border than Gifford did, which is actually interesting because Gifford's like, oh, I've been to Mexico. I spent a lot of time in Mexico. So I thought that was really interesting. Oh, boy. Is that the equivalent of like, I have Mexican friends and therefore I know about Mexico? <laughs> He released, like, I think it's like a photo book called Borderland, I think. Borderland, so, yes. Yeah. So he did some level of research. but Well, and so there are a lot of real life inspirations in this, though. So compared to Bigas Luna's ideas about making Romeo more political, Iglesia was more interested in the real character that Roman that Romeo Dolorosa was based on, and that is Adolfo de Jesus Costanzo. And this is a Cuban-American serial killer, drug dealer, and cult leader who led the infamous Matamoros cult, which is a drug trafficking and occult gang dubbed Los Narco-Satanicos, or the Narco-Satanists, by the media. I mean, slightly different. Just a little bit different. Well, and he was a gay model. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that. Yes! <laughs> did he have the bangs? Is that why he they're had... in there? <laughs> no, he did not. He... Come on. <laughs> 
girl knew better. <laughs> um, but no, he was, you know, very attractive and had um, male lovers. And one he called his man and the other one, or his husband and the other one, his wife. There were trans people in his entourage performing rituals and all of his victims were men that he sodomized and killed. Okay, so that, okay, okay, so getting into this, okay. So he led this cult with Sarah Aldrete, possibly whom Perdita is based on. But yeah, they were involved in a lot of ritualistic killings in Matamoros, including the murder of Mark Kilroy. And so, Kay, do you know if Mark Kilroy was gay? I, not anything that I've read, okay. um, but they targeted him because the cult believed that you basically acquire the special abilities from whatever right. the or, you know, so like if you eat mm-hmm. a muscular man, you'll be stronger. In this right. case, they wanted a smart person so they could be smarter. And so they were during spring break, you know, all these gueros from, you know, Texas crossed the border because the drinking age is 16 in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so they would party. And when Mark and his friends were leaving the club and walking back to their cars over the border, he had to go take a leak and kind of separated from his friends. And then out comes Adolfo's crew and they pose as the authorities and are, oh. you know, quote, arrest him. Right. And, you know, then he was never seen again. Well, it was because he, he was a UT. He was a UT student. So, I, sorry, <laughs> UT Austin. That, that's my alma mater. I, I live like 20 minutes away from this school. Oh, so I was oh like, my God, really? <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, my, yeah, that, that's where I went to college. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I mean, Mark Kilroy was one of many, but he was abducted, tortured, and killed in the area in 1989. And so, um, of course, now that we had a white person dead, uh, people got involved. So, during the police raid, Costanzo had one of his acolytes shoot him dead just so he could avoid prison. But his his cohort, Sarah Aldrete, she was convicted of criminal association in 1990 and jailed for six years. In a second trial, she was convicted of several of the killings at the cult's headquarters and sentenced to 30 years in prison, where she resides today. But... If she is ever released from prison, American authorities plan to prosecute her for the murder of Mark Kilroy. Hmm. There are, and I won't get too much into this because it's kind of like, eh, but like there are traces of another person in Perdita Durango herself, and that is Magdalena Solis. So this is all kind of rumor, local legend, but she was from the Hernandez Brothers cult in 1963. And she was supposedly hired by the cult to convince this small town of people that the Incas were speaking through them. So they brought her in to be like, hey, like, why don't you pretend to be a reincarnated Incan goddess? Well, she got a little too into the role and started killing villagers. And I'm not talking like just killing, but like brutal sacrifices, uh, blood orgies, a lot of peyote, a lot of sexual abuse. She killed upwards of five to eight people before the police came. But the first two officers that were sent out, she they disappeared and they found their bodies later. But that's when they had to basically send a raid to come in and get her. That's a method acting. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> It's, um, I mean, and you, we don't get that from Perdita in this movie, so it's, like, very loosely based. But also, mm-hmm. like, this cult, again, they, they claim to have powers to uh, go across the border and, like, you know, Jedi mind wave the, 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 the officers to, like, not notice the drugs in their backseat or something. Right. Okay. Like when Romeo puts his necklace on, you know, his blanket his in the backseat. His dead accomplice's body. Yeah. Yeah, and he gets, he gets away with it. 
Exactly. So back into the filming, Iglesia wanted to make a visual spectacle. And in his words, not just another bo- standard boring Hollywoodified Panavision film. And so, of course, we're talking about the uh, the visual aesthetic of the film here. He wanted the sun to be the sun and the faces to look like a colored comic book. Uh, he wanted as much contrast as possible to enhance the extremity of the film, both in terms of its aesthetic and its content, and he references his good friends, Gaspar Noé and Dario Argento, for using them as influences for what he wanted to do, which was take B-movies to the next level through radical and extreme film. That is so weird, because I learned that he's also a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock, like that's kind of how he learned his cinematic language, Mm -hmm. and... I also heard that Perdita Durango is like the weird film, at least in his early movies, that it doesn't as accurately reflect some of the interests that he has. But I think that's a bit more narratively than visually. Probably so. I haven't seen enough of his filmography to really, really compare the two. I've seen more of his modern work than I have his stuff from like the pre, I'm sorry, from the 90s. Hmm. So he spent a year and a half looking for locations and then a year in Mexico filming, uh, with filming also taking place in both Las Vegas and Nogales, Arizona. The production itself was, let's say, unconventional. So uh, they filmed in real brothels on the border. Um, There were a lot of real life connections to Santeria. And of course, Santeria is an African diasporic religion that combines the traditional Yoruba religion of West Africa, uh, the Roman Catholic form of Christianity, and spiritism. So Screaming Jay Hawkins, who's in this film, was a shamanic witch himself. Uh, Rosie Perez's sister was a Santera, or a priestess in the Santeria. Hmm. Authenticity. Yes, but the the film and Adolfo in real life um, portrays a bastardized version of the religion, so it's not, this is not authentic to the the true believers. They basically, Adolfo is just kind of nuts and went into a darker direction with it well because it was a lot of it was it was almost not hoodwinking what's up it was like a con right because he would con like yes. rich white people to come in and give him money and and that's what the film is very obviously commenting on mm-hmm. yeah he he did rituals for really influential people uh higher-ups in the you know the police departments the um politicians hollywood actors like he was like kind of like a novelty well a lot of and a lot of them wanted believed in the rituals that that they would benefit from it but he you know he was he was making money he had a menu of like okay like if we kill a chicken it costs this much if we kill a human well at that time they didn't go into humans yet but there was like lion cub or zebra i'm like jesus i love the idea of like like religion slash voodoo a la carte like please make your selection (laughs) off the menu Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a little infographic <laughs> and he did get involved with drugs like his kind of uh, eventually his posse was like this family drug cartel and he was basically trying to take it over he wanted to get into the business presumably to make more money well no i mean adding to the authenticity so i mean even for the sex scenes in this film iglesia actually asked perez and bardem if they wanted to just go ahead and fuck for real just to add to the authenticity of the film they both said no but he did let them (laughs) set the limits of what they would do in each sex scene so uh, while these are this is before the days probably of an intimacy coordinator maybe not but yeah no i think it is yeah um they at least were very comfortable with it so i mean hearing iglesia talk about this i'm like this none of this would fly today (laughs) oh no 
And there were the, some of the act, like the scene when they're in the Marines and they're fighting in that, like, you know, in the in the war. Yeah, in Beirut. In, war, in warfare. There was an explosion that actually injured Javier uh, uh, um, and... Fucked up his arm. Yeah. So there's a scene where he's actually, his arm's bandaged and it's because of that. Well, and that was a thing too. So he was burned and literally like he could have sued the production and literally gotten the film shut down and like just canceled. And he didn't because he's quote unquote a professional. But again, that wouldn't happen today. (laughs) And and I would say that that's not professional behavior. I'd say that's commitment. (laughs) Yeah. Very much so. But, you know, 90s, different time. So going into the score, just a brief bit. So I don't really talk about the score a lot. But again, going into this Italian horror influences, again, Iglesias is a huge fan of Argento and other Italian films. So it makes sense that he would go after Simon Boswell. It was his first pick to do the score for this because Boswell spent his 80s scoring Argento's Phenomena, Lamberto Bava's Demons 2, Michelle Suave's Stage Fright. And Alejandro Jodorowsky's Santa Sangre. And uh, uh, Boswell actually considers this score to be among his best. It's very bombastic. Very much so. Sometimes comically so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's in keeping with the film. And Iglesias co- uh, considers this film his best. Or his at least at least his favorite. Yes. Yeah, so he has two films that he considers his, his, his favorite. Yes. It is this and it is The Last Circus, which I think came out like after 2000. Because he says it's the only two films he was making where he didn't care if people liked them or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe's like, okay. <laughs> no, it's just the, the more I read and hear about him, he sounds like... He sounds like he would get along very well with John Waters and Mm. that he is a bit of a fuck it all prankster kind of type. Like he wants to come in and upset the table and possibly even flip it and Mm. just make people feel very uncomfortable. That is not inaccurate. I I think that is very, very true. And again, like I think he accomplishes that um, with a lot of his work. And he also does inject a lot of social commentary in some of his other work as well. Uh, Maybe not as much here, but I don't know. We'll... Hear about that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, Perdita Durango was released in Spain on October 31st, 1997, but never had a theatrical distribution in the United States. Uh, for two years, this sat on the shelf. U.S. distributors had no idea what to do with it. I mean, again, we're talking about a horror action comedy hybrid, but filled with rape, cocaine, voodoo ceremonies, a truckload of baby fetuses, and many or other horrible things. And it's a comedy. So, uh, in 1997. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it is a little bit strange because I think the most comparable film to Perdita Durango is Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. And that comes out in 1994. I mean, yeah, we don't have baby fetuses and it is less comedic, although some people would argue still comedic. Right. But I mean, that is very much a, oh, you're cheering for these people and they're the wrong people to cheer for. Yeah, I, I think that is a really good comparison of which I haven't seen that movie in a quite some time. Like that was definitely one of those college watches for me. So I can't compare to how it handles the the immorality of its characters as protagonists compared to Perdita Durango. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned that too, because that was written by Quentin Tarantino. And yeah. this film has a lot of similarities with From Dusk Till Dawn, also it written does. by Quentin yeah. Tarantino. And it has Estelle is played by the, an actress who was a hostage in from from dusk till dawn. Oh, okay. I thought she looked familiar. Mm-hmm. And there are and there are similar plot elements to True Romance, which is also yes. writ- yeah. written by Quentin Tarantino. So it's definitely and and Alex Cox is the director of 
Repo Man and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Sid and Nancy, who's in this film because he got fired off of directorial duties for Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. So he's very much like a film brat. Like he's, he's right. you know, he, he likes to provoke and, you know, in a similar way that you know john waters does but i think he's also very disciplined in how he does it i would agree i would agree but we'll we'll we'll, we'll see we'll see as we go through this plot because i'm i'm i've only seen this movie twice shocking right but i'm excited to dig into that but mm-hmm. funny aspect too about the, the actors that play estelle and Dwayne. so <laughs> i know you haven't seen this joe but Kay, have you ever seen shriek if you know what i did last friday the 13th Oh, no, but I have looked at that VHS cover many times. So the girl that plays Estelle is the opening, the Drew Barrymore kill, uh, Screw from Behind. That is her character's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the, the, guy, the guy that plays Dwayne plays Dawson Deary in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. So they are both like in that movie, like filming it two years after doing Perdita Durango. <laughs> oh, wild. A happy reunion. <laughs> Very happy. I'm sure they talked about it all the time with Julie Benz. So Perdita Durango was finally released on the U.S., uh, on DVD in 1999, two years after it was originally screened. Unipix bought it for video distribution and changed the title to Dance with the Devil because they said that Perdita Durango was, quote-unquote, too Hispanic of a title. Oh Again, 90s. Welcome back. Just unabashed racism. <laughs> it also removes an element of the title because Perdita means loser or lost. So, like, her name is supposed to be like, oh, she is a lost soul. So even remo- changing the title, it's like, what the... F- fuck are you doing man well they're thinking about how they can market it to white people but i also think that calling a dance of the devil implies that romeo in this scenario is the devil so he like corrupts her and brings Mm. her to the dark side when she is already there (laughs) and Mm. also she doesn't need to be corrupted because she's arguably as bad as he is exactly not worse maybe (laughs) exactly I d- I do think the the title Dance with the Devil does have some interesting thematic elements that can be t- you know we can extrapolate but Perdita Durango is the the proper title like it is her film and she's basically like kicks off the action of the entire movie and it and it opens with her and it closes on her and Rosie Perez is just fucking gorgeous and cool and, and she's just <laughs> oh she's a She's a fucking goddess. No, when this movie ends, it just ends. Like it's it just like no, we're we're cutting it off. It's done. <laughs> well, it feels like it could go on forever. So at a certain point, you have to be like, okay, this chapter of this story is done. Who knows if you'll ever get more. Yeah. Um, well, nevertheless, this release isn't the worst of it. So they had to cut a good chunk of footage to get an R rating for this film. So there are, as far as I can tell, three different versions of this movie. There is an edited R rated version that's 115 minutes long. So that's 15 minutes shorter than the uh, Spanish version that we watched. There is a still edited unrated version that is 121 minutes long, so about nine minutes shorter than the version we watched. The uncut version, again, Spanish version, is uh, 130 minutes long, two hours, 10 minutes. As far as I can tell, obviously the one on Shutter is that one. I think the one on Amazon Prime is that too. So again, okay. just uh, make sure you're looking for the one that's two hours and 10 minutes long. Right. They shot a lot of footage of extra violence and extra sexuality that he said that if they had been included, it would have been rated X. Which he wouldn't have cared. The only reason he he didn't do that is because they were like, you won't get a release in the States, which is ironic considering Mm -hmm. he still didn't get a release in the States. Yeah. (laughs) So for reception, we were looking at a 36% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.6 out of 10, whereas on Letterboxd, users have awarded it a 6.8 out of 10. It had an 
awful reception in Spain. Uh, this is kind of like paraphrasing Iglesia here, but he's like, it's a hardcore film. It was described as unpleasant, prideful, and ambitious. People were upset by the asymmetrical and irregular wildness of the film. Uh, people called it nonsense. The characters were confusing because the good ones were the bad ones and the bad ones were the good ones. You know, Ugh. that whole thing. Nobody from Spain said anything beautiful about the film. They saw everything as a problem. I will say, though, on defending the film's content, uh, Iglesia said that he wanted the audience to experience the character's lack of morals so there you go but i guess you could really say that about any filmmaker doing um uh, portraying or depicting uh characters like this right yeah i mean there's inherently a bit of a danger to that because it allows you to justify anything that you want to do but this film is so obviously steeped in it like you can tell he's not just including stuff to be controversial like this is the movie he wants to make very much so and he's intending his intention is to provoke the audience and to make us complicit in the depraved things that happen in the film right which i love that like i mean again like i feel like we talked about this a lot joe about like, when we're talking about like you know films with really again challenging moral gray area subject matter but like i like feeling like that like i like feeling like i'm putting these horrific characters minds and bodies and i don't know it just uh, it gives me like a little rush to do it but again i get that that won't be for everyone as they're watching something like this. Now I'm picturing Trace like doing a sexy dance and the, uh, okay. <laughs> with the gun, just like redeeming us. Granted, though, I mean, apparently Day of the Beast wasn't well received in Spain either because they thought it was too cynical, which I'm like, okay, it's probably also like very sacrilegious. So I mean, like that probably <laughs> contributed to it. But um, you know, what? yeah, he, he wants to make the movies he wants to make. And Perdita Durango, as we've said, is one of his absolute favorites of his whole set. There we go. And that is the production history of Perdita Durango. So why don't we jump into this plot? Because, uh, yeah, we, we've got a lot to cover here because this movie goes all over the place. All over the place, indeed. Yeah. Geographically and tonally. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Just everywhere. Every which way. All right. So we open with a dream sequence. We get to watch. Honestly, this was somewhere between a perfume commercial and like a late night kind of a call to talk to sexy ladies commercial mm -hmm. for me we just see this jaguar creep across this room and declothe rosie perez and it's stunning and and very sensual do y'all think there's any like symbolic resonance to this i mean i definitely look at this as oh look here is a kind of like animal figure that represents the character because like especially when you see them come face to face it's like oh they are looking each other in the eyes almost like a mirror so i immediately got a kind of she's going to be dangerous she's beautiful you know unpredictable kind of vibe from the character Mm -hmm. And she says um, to Dwayne, have you ever thought about a wild animal grabbing you and ripping yeah. you apart? And Dwayne says, I don't think of things like that. And, she, and then Pernilla <laughs> goes, that's why you're so boring. <laughs> mm -hmm. But for me, I like to think of this film as a spiritual sequel to Cat People. <laughs> How so? Well, I can't tell you what happens at the end of oh. Cat People, um, <laughs> but if the thing that happens at the end of Cat People didn't happen, this is who I who I would love for Irina to feel to feel right. free to become, and mm -hmm. and you know not necessarily Perdita exactly, but sort of this like no holds barred primal, just do right. whatever the fuck you want, since Arena's so repressed and holding so much aggression yeah. back um so to see all you know there's a lot of like wild cat themes in this film and and, and in fact like um romeo is addressed as um this 
god or creature that has um was a human body the head of a jaguar and then dumas says and a camel dick (laughs) (laughs) uh okay so after the dream sequence uh we are introduced to perdita durango proper in real life and she is hanging out at the bar at an airport where she is propositioned by computer software salesman manny flynn who is played by james gooden and this is such a fantastic character introduction it tells you everything you need to know about this woman in one single scene and it feels like that's why the scene exists so that you can get the fact that she is a sexually liberated woman but she's fucking smart she's gonna play on your dumb ass stereotypes about what a mexican woman is willing to do and she's gonna up the game and turn it around on you well, and I will tell you, the first time I saw this, I, I didn't know what this was about. I learned, This was a completely blind watch for me. I had no expectations going in. I really did walk into this movie thinking that she was going to be, I mean, she is the protagonist, but be someone I would side with. And so as, I mean, well, as we'll see in a minute, once she she uh, uh, suggests eating someone, uh, that is not the case with this character. <laughs> but you don't side with her? Oh. I, I mean, in, in this scene, I do. Oh, I do. I, <laughs> I adore her. I was going to say, Kay brings this energy into every day of her life. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Shaking my hips and rubbing a gun all over my body. <laughs> Part of the white tank top brigade of the early 90s. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Gosh, what a gift to have her chest like hers. Oh my I god. Mean, uh, Rosie Perez has always been beautiful she's she continues to look great like i'm thinking of her her role in birds of prey where i was like oh god we need more rosie perez but she looks so fucking good in this movie and okay my introduction to rosie perez was the romantic comedy it could happen to you yeah (laughs) when she's nick cage's uh, bitch wife right yes yes the bitch wife and Let's be. That, I think that was ninety two, so five years before this. And you know, she she done uh, 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 do the right thing. I, it's white man can't jump. That was her big breakout, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a risk. I, I, I can't imagine again because apparently Madonna was the original like choice for Perdita Durango. Which died. I scoffed to high <laughs> heaven when you told me that. <laughs> but like i i don't know man like i I, i'm so happy that she took this role because oh my god she's a powerhouse in this in this movie Mm -hmm. she devours every scene she's in and you see the way romeo looks at her he's just completely infatuated by one she's incredibly sexy but Mm -hmm. two she is so powerful and aggressive and combative that he's just like Yo, he's this violent criminal doing horrible things, you know, robbing graves and transporting fetuses. But he's like a little boy looking at her like, oh, my God. I mean, that's why they're so good together, right? Because she truly is his equal. This isn't a romance where she's like, I saw a couple of people say, oh, in a more conventional Hollywood version of this film, she would have been. Uh, provoked or she would have been you know kind of a victim of stockholm syndrome she would have been led astray from a regular life by this man and instead it's like oh no she's just his perfect female counterpart and in fact she enables him right Mm -hmm. yeah she does Mm -hmm. (laughs) she she is in control the entire time and is very good at making romeo thinking he's in control but Mm -hmm. 
he's also her Achilles heel. Like, she does genuinely care for him, and he's probably the only person, at least in the scope of this film, that is her weak point. Yeah. Yeah. He also seems to be the only person who truly understands her, though. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, after this airport scene, she goes out to get into her car. This title card, though. (laughs) Oh, my God. I forgot about this. So yeah, so after this this introduction, this airport scene, yeah, we get this close up of a baby fetus as mm-hmm. the camera pulls back, and then it's yeah this really like metal stylized title card of Perdita Durango as this jet flies around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have nothing to say except it's so fucking awesome. The airplane kind of theme comes up again and again. A lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she she goes out to get into her car and she is held at gunpoint, question mark whether these are real guns by two little girls. And she ends up explaining to them that she is off to the cemetery so that she can spread the ashes of her dead sister and her nieces who were murdered by her brother-in-law. So off we go to the cemetery. She does see Romeo committing grave robbing. And of course, he is played by Javier Bardem. And then she later meets up with him at the U.S. border. They have a combative, sexy relationship. So she calls him the F-slur. He talks about how he was robbing a bank and he had to nearly get caught so that he could sexually assault the bank teller. And then he sexually assaults a woman on the street so that the cops don't suspect he is, in fact, a bank robber. And this flashback is capped off when he hits and kills his accomplice. It's the first of many, many car accidents in this movie. He doesn't kill his accomplice, though, because his accomplice is... Okay, sorry. (laughs) We're we're led to believe that he has killed the accomplice and that's why he has some disposable cash well, but and it's yes kinda, the accomplice will come back it's kind of funny too because again you're kind of like okay like whatever this is just his backstory and all of this will come back later <laughs> yes i mean it's a good character introduction to him as well because we know that he does some really unsavory things both in terms of like criminal aptitude but also he's a man who doesn't respect women traditionally right like he goes into situations he takes what he wants and immediately his first interaction with Perdita, it's clear that they know each other from before this, but we don't know that. So we think he's just like randomly hitting on her and she is like giving it tit for tat to him. Yeah, do not fuck with her. And of note, so Shorty D is his like accomplice in the bank robbery. (laughs) And when Romeo was um, telling the bank teller to take her top off and he wants to see her, her breasts, Shorty D is like, we don't have time for this. What the fuck are you mm-hmm. doing? He's trying to pull him away from Romeo's impulses. But as soon mm-hmm. as he meets Perdita, who becomes his new accomplice, she's like, yep. let's kidnap some gringos and eat them, kill them and eat them. <laughs> Which yep. it's, it, it's funny, though, because again, the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, she's joking. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she tells it back. She, she goes from killing and eating people to just, oh, well, let's kidnap them and ransom them. But no, she, she means everything she says. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In the book, that's one of the differences. They were intended to be hostages and help for blackmail. And mm-hmm. the, the ritual, they actually kill a little boy. Oh. They slit his throat. Well, yeah. and I guess the, that's where the real life inspirations come in, right? Because they're going after that that cult leader. So it's like, no, 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 we got to bring that in. So let's swap that, that subplot. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also, once again, we are talking about a 90s film, but also an American film. We don't like to kill kids. But we do in this movie because we do see Juana's two girls get shot 
in a flashback later in the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, sure. But also, that's, that's later. Also <laughs> bottled fetuses rolling off the back of a truck. Oh, oh sure. But that's played for comedy. <laughs> oh, very much played for comedy. When that agent just like hands off the fetus to the other agent. <laughs> yeah, and he says to give it a proper burial. <laughs> it's easily the most comedic moment of this entire movie. By oh, yeah. oh, my gosh. Yep. So I'm going to introduce a reading that I'll refer to over the course of the episode. Uh, It's actually a chapter in a book dedicated to De La Iglesias. And this is written by Peter Boos, Nuria Triana Torabio, and Andrew Willis. And the book is called The Cinema of Alex De La Iglesias. And, you know, they, they spend a lot of time contextualizing this film in his oeuvre, which is where I got some of the background about how this is a a slightly different kind of movie for him. And I think there is a tension between the reality of adapting the book and how it changes what he might have normally done with material for his Mm. films. But they do comment a little bit about this idea of the Mexico-US border, because it is, it's not even like a malleable thing. It's, It's like it doesn't exist in this movie. They are just going back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. like it is magic. And that's what Buse, Toriana, and Willis all talk about. So to Romeo, the Mexico-U.S. border is insubstantial, a frontier he crosses at will and as if by magic. This fantasy of mobility is clearly at odds with the reality. And I think that last sentence, it seems really obvious, but I do think it's important for people like me who sometimes struggled with the movie this is not meant to be reality. This is like a hyper-realized, hyper-violent depiction where like yeah. you can't just magically glide across the border whenever you want. Right. It's it's like a Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, put that – this isn't a screwball comedy, but again, there are so many – there is that tonal jarring jar there's a total jarringness here where it's like, yeah, like you're watching all these really fucked up things. And the film – do y'all think the film takes a necessary stance on the morals or is it just like, no, we're just depicting this and we're not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just here it is because that's kind of the vibe I get from it. Yeah. So I think the film is very explicitly about that gray area. And when, you know, the crossing the border is you know akin to crossing the line when it comes to exploiting these taboos it's like they're dancing on that line and kind of thumbing their nose at the audience and thumbing their nose at the concept of a border i like that a lot because i did leave i've I've only seen this film once for this recording and i didn't always know what to make of it or why i wasn't connecting with it as strongly like i could very easily tell i was thinking of the two of you as i was watching it and thinking oh i know that they're gonna like this oh i know that they're gonna respond to this and certain parts of it just left me a little bit cold and i don't think it's necessarily because oh this film has really fucked up morals or it has no morals at all it was that i struggled to figure out if the movie cares about any of the things that it's talking about like there are no messages in this movie which is part of why i think de la iglesias is a bit of a prankster he's saying i'm raising these you can decide if you care about them 
I kind of don't give a fuck. I really just want to push your buttons. So I, my take, I do think he has some, there's some messaging in here when it comes to like consumerism and sort of mocking mm-hmm. American capitalism. Oh, yes. Okay. There's like the, the iconography of Mickey Mouse and McDonald's and just like the things people do for money. And you see the satisfied family and how they live and then how you know, Romeo lives. But I think ultimately the biggest message is about the line between control and chaos sort of like the hypocrisy and the absurdity of the idea that you can you have control over your life or you have control over yeah. other people and when chaos is really the dominating force in the world and Romeo embraces this he's basically like I hate people who make plans there's many many lines about the concept of um, of control and mm-hmm. the, a lot of comedy com- you know there's like four auto acts like four auto collisions <laughs> with yes. people you know and the and there's a lot of imagery of planes in the sky but also um this junkyard of planes i think and mm-hmm. it's kind of evoking sort of like the odds of you being injured or dying in one of these accidents but I, I do have a question for you, Joe, because I'm basically trying to figure out, I want to, I want to, I, I don't know if you know why you didn't connect with this outside of what you've already said, or if we're going to like parse through it as we go on. So, okay, cool. More the, the, the content, the gray area, like whatever, that, that doesn't really bother you, but the lack of a message, the lack of a point the lack of a reason for doing this is, so that seems to be the main sticking point, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, part of it is that the film feels a little aimless to me, and I mm-hmm. I leave it feeling like I don't really have a better sense of who the characters are than I did at the beginning. And I'll concede this is probably more of a me thing than other people where I like character arcs, I like narrative progression. This film is less interested in some of those things. For sure. You know, the things that I ended up gravitating to was, you know, the hilarity of, yeah, that that chaos versus control. Like, I died every time people kept getting hit by cars because I'm just like, <laughs> what are the fucking odds of this? It's really <laughs> amusing to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's something to be said about having to spend a bunch of time with despicable characters, but... At the end of the day, I've seen plenty of films where I don't necessarily like or relate to them. And I get annoyed with people when they say that that's a deal breaker. Like, we don't have to have movies with likable characters. I think that's something people need to concede is not always the point. But yeah, there there were a couple too often points where I was like, oh my god, I think I'm the Estelle in this situation. Like, I'm just the hysterical bitch screaming about no. wanting to go home and not being killed. I need to embrace my inner Perdita or my inner Romeo and just kind of go with this movie. Well, Estelle, when Estelle finally lets loose. Oh, yeah. (laughs) At the end. Which I also really like that scene. The ending for their, the last scene of them just walking off into the street, just, I mean, I, I love that that's the end for their characters. But um, uh-huh. no, because, hey, Joe, you're not going to be alone. Again, there are there are many people that do not like this movie. There are many people that will not like this movie when they watch it for this podcast. But I guess, did you find this movie as a whole entertaining? Were you entertained by this movie for its two hour and ten minute duration? Uh, I, I can't say that I always was. It was okay. more a sum of its parts. Like there were certain pieces that I really enjoyed, but it didn't come together as a whole for me. Okay. 
But let's maybe dive back in and I, I'll have an opportunity to highlight some of those scenes. And because <laughs> yeah. honestly, I came into the recording being like, I'm actually more interested to hear Trace and Kay talk about this because I think I am the sort of boring majority where people are going to say, oh, this was a hard one. Whereas I think you two are going to bring some really enlightening insights into it. Mine is just, it's so bad. It's fun. <laughs> okay. So Kay is going to bring some really enlightening insights into this. Yes. Well, no, I think your perspective is really important because. Because, you know, Trace and I are, like, pretty effusive about how much we enjoy the experience of watching this Oh, God, this you film. two are brats about this movie. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, yes! Well, we need the balance. <laughs> no, but like, Kay and I were even talking offline because, I mean, it, it, with Freeway, you know, the scene that really got to Kay and, and you, Joe, in Freeway was the, the interrogation scene where Reese Witherspoon's character spouts yeah. out about ten uses of the insular. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not like I'm saying, oh, well, like, how come that's bad? But like, you know, y'all, okay, you're fine with whatever's in this movie. It's more so like, I, I like talking about that. Hey, like, what is it about that scene specifically that, like, that, mm-hmm. that was a line too far? Whereas, again, the scene in this movie were two rape victim survivors. I, I don't know what to call them because they don't, because they end up liking it. Like they, they wind up liking their rapes mid-rape. Yeah, and beyond, yeah. It, it, it's a thing where I'm like, I, I'm not trying to be like, you like this, but why don't you like this? It's more so what... Well, yes, but like with a less defensive question tone about it, you know? <laughs> We're working on that. We're working yeah. on that. Yeah. But I, it, all of this is valid, right? Like one of the reasons that we need to continue to have these conversations, particularly if they are hard or contentious or if they vary, is because that's often where like I've had so many opportunities to change my mind because of the kinds of conversations that we have with mm-hmm. guests and just with you. So I like to do this because it forces me to say, well, why do you feel the way that you do? Because if I can't justify it and it's just like, I didn't like it, that's not good enough. And full disclosure, is, uh, there's more to it. But a part of it for me is I feel like I'm watching something I shouldn't be allowed to watch or that shouldn't be allowed to be out there. And I get like a rush or a thrill watching it. That mm-hmm. is part of it for me. But of course, we'll dive into like more analyses as we go on. And I think this film is very explicitly about that. I think that it's exploiting mm-hmm. sort of our fascination with violence and sex mm. and being like, this is what you like, you dirty pig. <laughs> you <don't laughs> like look it up. I'm just showing it back to you. Why don't yeah. you like it more? And I love the analogy to Freeway, but that, you know, because I do think that they're both kind of doing similar things. You know, it's sort of like the uh, finding glee and the audacity of trying to offend your audience. Right. But for me, the difference is a film like freeway is a product of chaos it's rough around the edges mm-hmm. uh it's director i think is a little unhinged matthew bright is <laughs> yeah you know, uh, kind yeah, of yeah. kooky mm-hmm. so while while freeway is a product of chaos i see Perdita durango as a highly orchestrated depiction of it and i see iglesias as a much more intentional director and he's you know he's make he's he's trying to make a point and however you feel about the film like visually like it it was storyboarded it was you know yes it was very well planned and you know freeway just kind of like how did this movie come to be but see it's so interesting that you say that because to me between the two films freeway is an easier pill to swallow in terms of the objectionable content because it looks so cheap it feel it looks and feels to me more or like a, like a grunge grindhousey film from the 70s, which that aesthetic, that dirty aesthetic lends itself to the subject matter. Whereas Perdita Durango is a big budget, slick 
film with this subject matter. So that to me, again, you have the aesthetic uh, juxtaposition against the tonal and content issues that are so bad. So that to me, I would find Perdita Durango to be a harder film to swallow because of that aspect, as opposed to Freeway, which to me just is a gross, dirty film, both in terms of content Mm -hmm. and how it looks. Well, in Perdita Durango's really slick production, Mm -hmm. and the way the violence is depicted, it it makes me think of the Matrix, which had come out a couple of years later, mm. and a lot of criticism that was lobbed against that film was about the glorification of violence and sort of like the gunfu and fetishizing violence and, and and specifically guns. And so that is you know the the sort of disregard for human life in this film is all over. But in the very end, when Romeo is is shot, the gun that shoots him is up close in focus and you mm-hmm. see the make and model of the gun right on it and oh, the, sure. behind it is this text on the back of the truck that just says happy <laughs> so it's like very like it's going out of its way to draw attention to the guns and the weapons right. and destruction well i think too okay so you know Joe, we just talked about the sadness uh, a couple weeks ago on the Patreon and how, you know, oh, we don't want people to say if you're liking a certain film with a certain amount of content, like then that makes you a bad person or you're endorsing the content in the film. Right. That risk aside, I'm going to say this. I do think for me, there's some kind of catharsis where it's like, I do have dark impulses. Now, I'm not saying I want to go and like, you know, sexually assault someone, of course, but everyone has like a darker side to them. And watching something like Perdita Durango gives me a sort of release almost where I'm like, okay, like I'm getting some of that out of my system watching this movie. It's like an outlet. Yeah, exactly. Which again, you could make the argument that horror in general, but on a different level. It's interesting that you say that there's a slickness to this cake. Cause I, I, I think I should probably retract what I said at the top when I was sort of gently dissing the visual style of the film in favor of something like Almodovar, which is similarly practiced, but maybe a little bit more sterile, at least in the later films. I do think tonally for me, one of the things I struggled with is that this does hearken to more of like a Western road trip kind of movie, Mm -hmm. similar to like Robert Rodriguez's early films. And Mm -hmm. I don't always love those. So I do... I do wonder if that's maybe part of my personal struggle as well. But I can definitely appreciate what you two are saying about sensationalizing violence and almost like reveling in it, like really forcing people to say, hey, you like this. So just embrace this, like go along with Perdita and Romeo, because we're all kind of driven by id. Joe, I I will actually say this. I I understand exactly what you are saying. Because, and you're going to hate that I'm going to bring this up again, oh, no. do you know how I felt, this, what film I felt the same way in? Yeah, it's Near Dark. Near Dark, exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was actually going to say, I fe- I think that this is the reverse, where I, this yeah. is my Near Dark. Yeah, like, it's, it's you can explain it, but it's also like, yeah, I just don't vibe with this with this aesthetic, or this look, or this setting, or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a particular shot when they're at the ranch, and Perdita's revealed, and she's framed by, like, the two ranch doors they're kind of like like barn doors and there's like the 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 cactus desert behind her and she's posed and lit in this way that looks like oh you know she's a um just kind of like wandered into town and it's like oh here's the black hat and it's Mm -hmm. just like so iconic and there are shots where romeo is just lines up perfectly where it looks like he has these cactus devil horns you know popping up behind him when he takes a life and there's a shot with perdita when she is threatening Dwayne, and right before 
the whole place gets burnt down but there's this um like some kind of mural behind her which gives her a halo in that scene mm. so they're you know they're they're sort of mm, trying to make these characters into these sort of larger than life like iconic western heroes in a way right well and that very much plays into romeo's kind of like religious biblical like a lot of his flashbacks are very heavy on a kind of religious implications as though he is on some kind of divine mission or driven by or informed by godliness and you're like mm. oh well that's fucking controversial okay well and he calls it his science he says he's a scientist because he this to him is real and perdita thinks it's all bullshit but he he very much believes in it and and in that and along those lines when he talks about the island he's from and there were only two cars but mm -hmm. inevitably they end up crashing into each other right and <laughs> which is hilarious but to me that's also like chaos theory his religion is the fact that you can't predict the future or you can't control the future that your fate is written for you and i think that ties in really nicely into the concept of chaos theory which is a mathematical concept and so it there is a sort of really nice dialogue between faith and science that's so interesting i totally missed that because i was too busy being like oh the sight of those two cars colliding and blowing up is literally the intersection of these two quote-unquote villains slash protagonists because it happens right around the time that we see them having their first sort of very aggressive sex scene oh yeah <laughs> right oh my god the best sex scene ever God, what I'd give to be either of them. <laughs> it is my preferred sex scene between the one and the dirt we get later, because in the dirt I was like, oh! Uh! <laughs> oh no, I like that Very one messy. I, I'm sure you did. <laughs> well, it's important to you that the scene happens relatively early in the film, right? Like, we saw the kind of not-meet-cute, where they're very combative at the border, and then he drives her to the ranch, they have this amazing fuck session, oh and then God. almost immediately we're into this Santeria ritual, where you know, we see him hacking at a corpse, snorting a bunch of coke, spitting blood in people's faces, and it's so performative that I almost mm -hmm. had to laugh, because you're just like, who falls for this shit? It's all made up. And yet you can tell that it's very much steeped in reality. And that's why there's a bunch of idiots who are falling for it and giving him their cash. Well, it's also a lot of white people in there, uh, if you look closely. But yeah. like, it, also, I want to point out for the production. Also, they went to real uh, Santeria markets. Apparently, in these markets, they sell baby fetuses in jars. And they bought them as mm -hmm. set dressing for this scene. Yep. Oh. <laughs> some some local flavor yeah. so again that i don't think that would have flown <laughs> nowadays no. honestly it probably didn't even fly back then they were just in mexico so it's like let's do it <laughs> during these scenes though they uh they had basically iglesia walked into set one day and there was someone uh oh my god is it smudging with the sage smudging the space cleaning yes, the space correct. because and he was freaking out like we don't have the budget for this and they're like no no no, no we're not charging you like we need to clean this space because your movie is bringing bad energy you have bad juju from this set 
I love how on both rituals, there's always a lady who's getting really turned on and she's like mm-hmm. taking her shirt off. She's in a bra and she's oh, like, course. she sees this as this like sexual experience. Yeah. So I want to come back to trace your comment that you feel like this provides you an outlet in which to kind of like live out some of these fantasies because mm-hmm. I'm going to bring in Buse and all and their piece on this specifically about these Santeria scenes. They say the soundtrack editing and camera work of the sequence and they're specifically talking about this first one are all calculated to elicit involvement rather than detachment from the spectator so like you're meant to be sucked into this as a spectator they go on to say in three minutes of film there are approximately 100 shots cut to follow the beat of an increasingly frenetic perez prado mambo and then they go on to say this is karaoke for the gullible rather than authentic black magic i mean i i don't know because the, these scenes i feel like i don't remember a lot from these voodoo scenes because they're so frenetic and also it gets kind of tiring to watch him just throw his uh his really bad hair around <laughs> the circle of people for like five minutes did you want to make the courtney cox reference now no i don't want that I, i'm sorry yes everyone he is wearing courtney cox's wig from scream three mm-hmm. there we he's go. not well <laughs> And towards the end, when they're outside of the, uh, I don't know if it's a motel or whatever, their friend's apartment, his friend's apartment, Romeo and Perdita kind of turn away for the camera and their heads line up. And at that mm-hmm. moment, you realize that they both kind of have the same do. They oh, they do. do. Yeah. He, he, he just cut his bangs a little too short where she said, nope, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. She's like, uh, I'm stylish. I'm not doing it that short. <laughs> and you know what? It works for me. I think it's kind of hot. Especially with him in those leather pants. Um, I've never particularly found Javier Bardem attractive, so I am the wrong person to ask that question to. <laughs> it's a very distinct look. Yeah, it's like a partial bowl cut with long in the back. It's like a bowl cut mullet with rocker chic. Yes. So observing this Santeria sequence is DEA agent Woody Dumas, who is played by James Gandolfini, who <laughs> I did not know was in this movie. Yep. <laughs> He's so I was good. very happy to see him because he he's very good in a kind of nothing part. Um, I wouldn't say he's in. He is very much comedic relief in this movie. Every scene he is in, because his whole thing, he just keeps getting beat up as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess yeah, I guess maybe narratively, it's like yeah, he's just the one that's chasing them. He's the one they're trying to run away from. But at the same time, he adds to that comedy so much. Mm-hmm. And his yeah. performance is just really specific, and his mm-hmm. comedic timing is brilliant. Like he's an so he's funny. such a, a funny actor. Well, it's funny, right? Because people, especially folks who only know him from The Sopranos, don't associate him with roles like this. He is a hugely funny actor. Like he was such a gifted actor in all regards. But it's a shame that people only kind of associate him with right. a sullen gangster because he was way more than that. Agreed. Hard agree on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we also have some other characters. Uh, any thoughts on Adolfo, who kind of just like quietly creeps into this movie and then is unceremoniously killed later, but I find his presence very calming? 
Question mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, well, Iglesia I, wanted Screamin' Jay Hawkins in this movie, and Gifford didn't want that. <laughs> he was like, that doesn't really fit my movie, but whatever. I, I think it's fine. Um, I, I like the song he has in the movie that ends it. Uh, okay. But yeah, I mean, he's kind of, to me, this is more of a nothing character. Oh, okay. I think he's so funny. He's like this kind of this innocent. And we should say that he's like a very famous blues singer. He was a shaman in his own right himself in real life. Mm-hmm. And m- most people would probably recognize his version of I Put a Spell on You. He's got this really right. big dramatic vibrato and yeah we talked about the racism of that back in our hocus pocus episode if people oh, want yeah. to go back and listen to it he's addressed very much in line with uh, the aesthetic of coffin joe yeah it's it's interesting because he stands out and blends in which is sort of exactly what the character does right like he's along for romeo's ride but he's not going to be the person to say no to him Right. That being said, um, he does get a laugh out of me when Estelle is trying to beg him to release her later in the film. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Do do, do you want a blanket? Yeah. (laughs) Say something. You want a blanket? (laughs) And she she hits him with that like Mickey Mouse statue and knocks him out. Well, he falls to the ground and then she gets up and with gets the gun and then he plays dead. But later on when they are voting to see which one of who's going to get killed. Yeah. Um, they, there's a tie. And so Adolfo walks in and they're like, Adolfo, which one should we kill? And immediately he goes, the green cup. Payback's <laughs> <laughs> hey, a bitch still. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know what? If we want to really read into it, her destroying that Mickey Mouse Innocence lost. There you go. Well, so in her bedroom in the beginning, there's a Mickey Mouse doll on her bed. Okay, let's move into their introduction because when we cut to the satisfies, which I love that there is their last, that that is their last name, by the way. (laughs) Yep. We are, we are, we don't see them first. We just cut to the opening t- title sequence of the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that, again, juxtaposed with what we have just seen, this is what white people do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and the set design of this house is so different from anything else in the film. It is so, it, fe- it doesn't feel real either. It feels very heightened of like, this is what white people have. Yeah, it's like a John Waters house. Yes. Oh uh, my God. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. The colors, the primary colors all over this place. Mm -hmm. And just the characters are so goofy and over the top. The dad is so weird. (laughs) Well, but it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, Hey, because the dad is actually very controlling. Like, he is a force for normalcy, right? Like, there will be decorum. There needs to be particular things in a particular order. And he doesn't like things being different, which is why when we see him so much later in the film, like well after you've forgotten he's even a character in the movie, he's just surrounded by bottles of like the airplane liquor. And you're just like, oh, this dude is messed up now. Like he has been involved in the chaos now. Yeah, he represents control and, you know, also being like sort of this white masculine, you know, the one of the um well i guess james gondolfini but he's more like a clown role and this guy's goofy but he's obsessed with the concept of control and and of course his fate shows that like nothing that he did (laughs) amounted to anything yeah his destiny was one of the other big big laughs that i got (laughs) in this movie because i was just like you think he's going to come in and be involved in saving the day, right? And instead, it's just like, oh, no, he's dead now. He's mm-hmm. completely written out. My eyes have just been trained. Whenever a character walks into the street and it is a, a longer, like a far away shot, I'm like, well, someone's about to get hit by a car. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's funny when the, the two kids get – Perdita releases them – 
and they run diagonally across an intersection mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they're free to go oh. there's like no cars on the road it's like pretty desolate but they that's i didn't the even last think about we that. see them as them like kind of frolicking over this intersection i didn't even think about that but that's actually a great like uh mirroring of those two scenes that's probably the intention too oh 100 percent. yeah they end up you know they end up pretty lucky in the end. Yeah, all things considered. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah. So there's some some scenes where we see Dumas is trailing Perdita. This is when he yeah. gets hit by the car the first time, and we also should probably spend just a teeny bit of time talking about some of Romeo's flashbacks slash his letters from his grandma, who is played by Josefina Ekanove. So the the first one, okay, you've already briefly mentioned it's the scene in Beirut where he, well, technically the first one is the cars colliding on the, the island where he was uh, raised, but then we get the scene in Beirut. And I'm curious, do you two like the flashbacks? Because I've gathered that this is a point of contention, especially from critics. Literally in my notes, I wrote, he gets a Bible full of cocaine and a letter from his grandmother who seems to be a cigar smoking badass. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> The only reason we have them here is so that when he finds out his grandmother's house is raided later, like it's supposed to basically show like how much, how outside of Perdita, his grandmother is the one person he really, really, really cares about, which is how he has to go back and get you know Demian Bashir later in the film. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't, I don't. They're very short. Like, they're, these, this isn't a point of contention for me. I don't, I don't love them, but I also don't think like they don't waste enough of this, my time in the film to where I'm like, ooh, get these out of here. Yeah, because the the common criticism is that they derail the pacing of the film, and you know, quote unquote, don't add enough. Like they don't justify their own existence. But uh, it it was a leading question, I'll admit, because uh, mm-hmm. I want to bring in Buse and all uh, again, where they make the argument that the flashbacks are not a technique that. Dilla Iglesias would normally use so you you won't see this kind of narrative structure in many of his other early films but in the case of Perdita specifically they argue that it's here to mitigate the brutalities of the lead pair so it's not just Trace that he does have a connection to grandma and that's one of the other characters that means something it's actually meant to soften them so that they are not hissable villains they're people we want to root for and I'm curious because I don't entirely entirely agree i don't agree with it either the only thing is it just shows that they have a human connection like they they are not so terrible that no one means like that everyone means nothing to them right like he Mm -hmm. at least has feelings for someone so on that level i'm like yeah sure whatever but like a lot of horrible killers and rapists and whatever have someone that they care about so uh no no that i disagree with that reading yeah well and i do think they they do yeah evoke a sort of like there there is an innocence in them or there once was and in one of the flashbacks they're watching vera cruz and you know he talks about how he um fell in love with the villain in that film right. and it's and it's akin to us kind of being yep. charmed by their villainy and so i think that it, it goes to reveal a little bit more of what the film's trying to say although i think the flashbacks in general are kind of like a nice way to cover some of the things that are in the book or like when you're when you're adapting a a piece of literature in general it's really hard to kind of get it all in there or or work in some of these asides Mm -hmm. um and they don't you know i don't know if they necessarily add or take away from the film but i do think it's indicative of an adaptation well 
To me, though, okay, so let, let me clarify this. So first of all, it's not like how us as queer people also love to idolize villains anyway. I mean, look, we can look at Ursula and Little Mermaid and be like, oh my god, queen, yes, work. But she's also like a horrible per- octopus. Um, <laughs> but also, I... Okay, I don't think it's these flashbacks. Yeah, I don't think they're trying to make us like, oh, like, look, look at them. I, I do think it's to make them a bit, a bit more relatable, which is the intention to be like, oh, look, oh, my God, like you start to relate to them. But then it's like, oh, my God, but I am relating to these horrible people. So, again, that to me goes back to Iglesias lineup. I want the audience to feel the immorality of these characters. And I think right. part of that is making you relate to them in some shape, way or form, even if it's just something as, oh, he really liked this movie growing up. I had a special place in his or oh he really cares about his grandma i care about my grandmother too oh my god we're just alike like that to me is like that kind of ballpark but not like mm-hmm. oh we're trying to like make you empathize with this person my mom right. is named martha too yeah oh my god. <laughs> exactly fuck batman yes yeah. <laughs> yes yes joe that was good <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about another character that we have not discussed, which is pedophile Crazy Eyes Santos, who is played by Don Strout. And so he wants to hire Romeo to deliver this truck of refrigerated fetuses to Las Vegas for skin care purposes. Uh <laughs> What do we think of Crazy Eye Santos, folks? First, I do want to say that the reason it's fetuses is because Iglesia was like, I had just, I oh know, it was Gifford. Oh, Gifford said he is, I had just, everything with Mexico is drugs. I wanted to do something that wasn't drugs, so I came up with fetuses. <laughs> well, Fair it enough. was in the, it was in the book, although yeah. it was, there were placentas. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but I actually don't have strong feelings about this character. I, mean, I love that when we meet him, he's like cutting meat off a spit and his limousine, yep. <laughs> an illegal meat. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, of course, it has mm-hmm. to be illegal meat. Mm-hmm. I mean, what did you take that to be? I went horse. Did you interpret that as something else? No, I think uh, I think he called it some kind of ham. Uh, okay, maybe a boar of some kind. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I, he's fine. The problem is because because there isn't really a main villain or a big bad in this film. Right. The 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 conflicts, the people who are uh, antagonizing Perdita and, and Romeo, they have very little screen time. They're, it's just kind of like the, their shadow is looming over them for most of this. Um, so again, I don't think he's that imposing of a figure outside of the fact that it's just oh, he's the big gangster boss guy. There you go. Well, but mm-hmm. he does sexually assault a child yes yes very much so (laughs) which is almost a blink and you'll miss it kind of scene where you're just like oh did he just hit her or oh no yeah Mm -hmm. and he was the the scene prior he was playing a clown at a children's birthday party yes and the last time we see him in that scene he's kind of making a goofy face to the the girl and mm-hmm. then the next scene, he slaps her and says, no teeth. Right. Yeah. It's fucked up. But again, like, it's like, I think he has three scenes in the movie. He has this limo scene. He has the scene of the birthday party. And he has the scene where he tells Reggie, go kill Romeo. Yeah, more or mm-hmm. less. Yep. And he, he, he reinforces the idea of being sort of the master of your domain or, you know, um, he says, like, a man should live his life on his own terms or not at all. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain... The fact that we're dealing with a film from Spain doesn't surprise me that we are having discussions, at least, about what it means to be a man and living your life as a man. I think it's all kind of hilariously fascinating because this is 
a bunch of men talking about what it means to be masculine in a film named Perdita Durango, where the strongest, most capable character is Perdita Durango. Well, I know, and, and that is Gifford. That Gifford was like, I, I've always found, especially in writing, that women are smarter and stronger and more resilient than men. Yeah, no, no lies detected. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're, but you're right, Jim. Yeah, that 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 is absolutely almost satirical to the point, right? Mm, but it's so subtle, right? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people could just watch this movie and think, oh, it's just glorifying violence by these low life characters. And they're right. not going to see the imagery. They're not going to see the kind of criticisms of capitalism and masculinity and other things. Like, it is a smart film. It's just that it sometimes hides it under this mask of like lowbrow exploitation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's a clown motif in this film, and it's almost always related to masculinity yeah because gandolfini definitely is a clown but he like not just the character but he increasingly starts to look comedically <laughs> like a clown as he accrues injuries right mm-hmm. yeah and <laughs> okay. and um to the gender aspect of this like perdita is one of the only characters where you can really see her inner life in her eyes like you can see her struggling with certain things or you know she she does there is a sensitivity to there's like a hint of second doubt in a couple moments that sort of because also perdita has a history of childhood sexual abuse um again witnessing her sister and her nieces get murdered mm-hmm. um so there's something there where you can think, oh I, I can see maybe why she is this way but the film also never really offers it as a as an excuse to be excuse. like yeah well but it's also to me it's not a explanation like okay yeah sure she was sexually abused as a child sure she saw her sister get killed. those are traumatic incidents absolutely but do i think that those are the reasons or the only reasons why she is the way she is today no and i kind of love that mystique about her mm-hmm. so one of the things i find really interesting about our character because I, I i've been thinking like why is she the way she is right and there's a moment when they first kidnapped wayne and estelle and oh. <laughs> Dwayne is like trying so hard to like save their ass. And mm-hmm. he says like, oh, what does he say? Something of like, oh, he talks down about like, oh, you know, I, I know that your people have. Yes, uh, right. White guilt. Yeah. He white guilts them. <laughs> yes. He says, I'm sorry about what our people have done to yours. Yo, mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, this is of you know very much a a film about the border and uh, you know it's like here's a spanish director making a film that is evocative of abortion and immigration Mm -hmm. like you know two of the most chillest issues in america right like so it's like definitely kind of provoking that and i get with perdita i kind of get the impression of like the movie where someone's being othered or there's this monster like they're being made out to be a monster and at some point you just kind of go well i'm just gonna act like one then if you're gonna think of me this way anyway then i'm just gonna do whatever i want and i kind of get a little bit of that with perdita where she's like you know what you all can think what you want about me so i'm just gonna do whatever the fuck i want because you're gonna keep thinking whatever you want anyway which, by the way, though, speaking of her kidnapping these two, so I love it. A, it is just in the she just grabs them like in the middle of a crowd of people, <laughs> kidnaps these two kids. But what did y'all think of the drunk guy breaking the fourth wall to yell at the audience? Fuck all of you. Yes. <laughs> Again, I think that's very much you know, the point of the film because when uh, her brother-in-law, you know, kills the kids and his wife, and then shoots him 
himself. He he puts the gun in his mouth. He, oh yes, mm-hmm. the first time he definitely time, breaks the fourth wall again. There. Yep, the first time he looks directly at the camera and blows his brains out. But then we go back to that flashback later, and he says, "This would not have happened if you were here." It's a dream that Perdita's having, but he's yeah. looking directly at the camera. It, that's very Michael Haneke, right? With funny games where it's like, yes. mm, this movie wouldn't have been made if y'all wouldn't have turned out in droves. Well, I mean, you know, maybe right. <laughs> turned out in droves to come see it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Fucking love that shit. Oh. Mm, me too. <laughs> I mean, this is a film that also plays heavily on stereotypes and like audience expectations. So I'm bringing in Buse and all again. But just thinking about, okay, as you were talking about the border again, because yeah, we've grabbed the kids and we just immediately take them back over to the border to the ranch and abuse and all they cite uh, another critic named claire f fox and she says in the popular imagination the border is a highly eroticized milieu of outlaws and whores and the association of mexico with the lower body is still very prevalent in contemporary u.s popular culture and i very much got the sense that even though this is a spanish filmmaker adapting a book but it's about like the mexico u.s right. border This film savvily knows that, like, if you say, oh, we're taking white kids into Mexico, danger, danger, like these poor children, they're going to be sold into (laughs) sex slavery and blah, blah, blah. And yes, like these are the things that happens. But the film is doing it with such a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, hey, you fuckers have stereotypes and we're playing on them. We're not perpetuating those stereotypes. We're just activating the ones you already have. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. There you go. I'm back on I'm back on this guy's wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> and, and while also mocking the American culture and white people. So oh, yeah. much. Yeah, like Dwayne and Estelle are maybe two of the stupidest characters mm-hmm. that I have seen in a film in quite some time. But uh, I, purposefully so, but yeah. They are insufferable they're, in they're this movie. Ha- Hansel and Gretel. Oh yes. yes. <laughs> but I will say, though, I actually really like them. Like, yes, I think they're annoying at first, but I like following their journey. <laughs> Again, because we're about to get to the, the rape scene. Mm-hmm. Um, rape scenes. I just, I don't know. I, I just... um. <laughs> it's it's something where it's like oh yeah like you're having like this kind of uptight prude person uh I, 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 oh they're opening up they're learning to embrace their darker darker side and go out unfortunately it takes a sexual assault among other things to instigate this for them but mm-hmm. that is what the movie is wanting to do but again i i really like following their journey from point a to point b or d well and the when we see estelle's room in the beginning she also has a poster nirvana poster hanging on her wall and under the shirt that she's wearing when she leaves the house which is revealed later is a shirt that says rape me on it oh because that is a nirvana lyric right Uh, a song yeah yeah Hmm. so Speaking of rape and sexual assault, let's talk about the way that this is presented in this film, because I, Trace, you kind of suggested that if folks were going to have an issue with this film, mm-hmm. it would likely stem from this pair of scenes. Yes. So um, first of all, I do love that the setup, because we have, um, <laughs> after this philosophical religious conversation between Dwayne du- and Romeo, where we get that crucifixion flashback. Oh, you mean his sticker book of Aztec sacrifices? Yes, that. But he's like, oh, I'm just filling in a little holes in Dwayne's education. And then Perdita walks out and goes, well, my little intellectuals, I have one or two holes that need a little filling myself. Yes. (laughs) 
Rude. <laughs> I was just saying yes, but then I was like, oh wait, no, they're about to rape them. Uh, well, okay, so so that's the thing. Okay, so um, Rebecca McKendry says this about in, in her interview on that disc. She goes, "The rapes are not comedic, but they are bookended with comedic scenes, which is something you can't really do now, or even back then. Right. It's a very slippery moral area that makes it a very hard movie to stomach." Uh, she refers to Perdita Durango as a demented, ugly unicorn of cinema. Of how did this happen? Because we will never see another film like this again but you're right I, I i also though might take not issue but like i might disagree with saying that the rapes sorry, the rapes themselves are not comedic however i do think that once we start to see them enjoy it i don't i i would argue that they get a little bit comedic during that point because i mean i don't you're going through a lot of emotions watching those scenes. And, and Iglesia refers to the, these scenes as consensual rapes, which is, of course, an oxymoron right, in and of yeah. itself. No, I do think there is there is a turning point in both of them where it mm -hmm. appears that they're starting to enjoy it. But this is still initiated against their will. And so there could be all kinds of psychological things going on. And mm -hmm. like it's not, it, you know, it can't be, uh, it, there's no way that any of this could be consensual. Joe, what was your reaction to this scene? So I'll, uh, you know what, let's get some controversial statements on the table here. I okay. will confess, when we started with Estelle, I was like, okay, well, here we go. We all know how this is going to right. come to pass. And then when we got to Dwayne's sexual assault, I kind of silently cheered because mm -hmm. I was really happy that for once we were actually normalizing the fact that men are also raped. And I unfortunately do think that Dwayne's piece is treated slightly more comedically, like the way that Perdita reacts to his tepid enjoyment and then subsequent like non-climax is... I think mm -hmm. it, it has a comedic beat to it. I don't know if the film treats it like a punchline. Well, but we have that that really quick cutaway to his first time where he is being he's having sex with a, a very large woman. Right. And that to yeah. me feels more like a punchline. That one feels fat phobic and judgy. Yeah, it very much is. Um, mm -hmm. It's like a Farley Brothers moment, but it's also yeah. it's in the script, too. It's like written as ugly as it's depicted. Yeah. Yeah, like that one is deliberately meant to be, oh, well, his first time barely even counts because it's this disgusting yes. woman. And you're just like, oh, okay. So, so yeah, we've got like layers upon layers of just not greatness going on here. But yeah, I, in a way, I was glad that we didn't just say, oh, well, Dwayne just sits there and has to listen to his girlfriend be sexually assaulted. It's uh, no, we, we are going to sexually assault both of these because that could and does happen well and that's the thing right so Dwayne's is over first this is the briefer of the rape scenes mm -hmm. and Perdita brings him over to watch watch Romeo rape Estelle but again this is when we and Dwayne see that she I'm going to say starts enjoying the the the, the rape it appears that way and it does seem to you know it, there it is a pivotal moment for the characters where they kind of seem a little more liberated from this moment forward and then increasingly so and mm -hmm. so when Dwayne and Estelle end up having sex with each other Dwayne says oh they can see us and she says let them doesn't care yeah let yeah. them see us which is indicative of their arc in this film mm -hmm. but I think it's also let the audience see us fuck. I think that final scene is meant to also make us feel slightly less grossed out by this earlier 
rape scene like well it didn't have a negative lasting stigma on them in fact look they can still enjoy sex and and maybe even more so and then they get to go off and have their happy ending at the end of the film but it's only via this non-consensual rape yes exactly so that's the thing right i mean look you (laughs) that 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 arc i was talking about earlier was oh yeah we have these uptight characters that get to let loose and have fun yeah but it takes something like rape in mm-hmm. this movie to make that happen. And that is, that's gross. That, that's sick. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. But that is absolutely what the movie is trying to make you feel in this scene. Because they're also, they're also kidnapped, held hostage, mm-hmm. th- you know, threatened with their life several times, almost sacrificed. Like they're not, in addition to the rape, there are several traumatic things happening to them. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they get to skip away holding hands is is Mm -hmm. you know pretty discordant yeah i'll confess i actually you know i i don't think glibly said it but at the beginning of this recording i said i don't think that this is the worst sexual assault (laughs) that we've seen or that we've talked about on the podcast you know i'm still gonna say the girl with the dragon tattoo was to me more upsetting than what we see here right i think the the more strongly resonant emotional piece that I had was when Estelle is nearly sold into sexual slavery, but to Catalina later, and then she has to witness the murder, and then she and Romeo go out onto the dance floor and just have like a screaming dance fit, and I found that very upsetting because it you could see her sort of like compounding traumas on top of one another, and it's cathartic to see her get the release, but it's also yeah very upsetting. Yeah, T- to me, uh, yeah, I agree. It's not the fact that the rapes themselves are particularly graphic, like. Like, I mean, granted, I mean, Acel's is a bit more graphic than, than Dwayne's, but yeah, it's not as brutal, let's say, as the dragon tattoo. But again, to me, the brutality in that comes from, it just really is with the conflicting emotions you were seeing. It's an emotional brutality. Again, as you are watching sexual assault, as the as the victims start to enjoy it, like that, that to me is the worst part of it. But I get what you're saying, Joe, where just like physically and like, it's like an emotional climax almost for, for Estelle in that moment. Although I got to say when she finally just says, fuck it, I'll do this line of cocaine. I was like, you know what? I would too. After, go, the, after the days you have had, <laughs> yeah. do it. I think one of the other challenges with these rape scenes is that we don't get a ton of insight into how Dwayne or Estelle feel about them, right? Like, right. ultimately, they are characters in this movie. Like, I would say that this is a central foursome. And yet, obviously, the two real characters are Perdita and Romeo. We have a better understanding of what's driving them and who they are as people. And I think that becomes really evident in the way that this rape scene is filmed, because what I take away from it is how Perdita looks at Romeo having sex or raping Estelle. So it becomes less about what's happening to Estelle because she's not as important and more about how Perdita reacts because she feels threatened and she feels jealous. And that's why they go out to the desert and they start to beat each other up and then they have like their own kind of version of cathartic sex right well and i think that might be an issue for, again for some people watching this movie because yeah the, the, unfortunately the the the, the rapees are not we're not in their pov the, the, they, they are secondary or maybe even tertiary characters so but that's also the kind of movie we're watching that being said yes i mean going straight into their sex scene in the dirt where it's like because again the, the 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 ending comedic beat after this is when she's like well you know she's not a virgin anymore that was probably going to be good for your for your ritual and he's like oh shit yeah, yeah. I yeah. Thought about that. <laughs> why didn't i think about that 
Well, and there's also the the visual joke of, you know, them having sex with the cactus and the airplane going around it. And you're like, oh, that cactus looks like a penis and that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a bit on the nose, but yes. It is a touch (laughs) on the nose. Yeah. Joe, going to that moment where Estelle is having that liberation on the dance floor with Mm -hmm. Romeo. You know, she's just kind of screaming and you can't, you know, there's like loud music playing yeah. and there's crowd dancing and um, Romeo is having like his convulsions and, mm-hmm. and she's just screaming and screaming. And then you kind of see that she starts to kind of like rock out in the crowd. Yes. almost like she's in a mosh pit and you can uh-huh. see yeah. her just like, you know, being liberated. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as the rape scene. Like she's like she's traumatized and then she's like, well, I'm. I'm Maybe not over it, but she's like, I'm moving past it and I am just going to let loose. Right. And well, what happens is Romeo ends up hitting her and she Mm. falls to the ground and she starts slapping him. And the audience just looks and they start clapping to the beat. (laughs) (laughs) We're the audience. We're, you know, we're witnessing this stuff and we're saying like, we're complicit. This is entertainment. It's a performance piece and we're eating it up. Exactly. And again, I'm like, yes. Oh my God. Make challenge me. Make me feel immoral. Like make, make me wonder what am I rooting for? And again, when we get to the end of the movie, the climax, like again, like there are parts where I'm like, oh my God, like I I want I, I'm rooting for Romeo and Perdita. But then I'm like, wait, why am I rooting for Romeo and Perdita? <laughs> because yeah. they're fictional and it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and because it's once again better to have the conversation and be like, okay, this is like in a way without getting absolutely ridiculous ivory tower this is the power of cinema right like (laughs) think about it this director makes us feel so many different things over the course of this film and it is hugely controversial but it's also i think it's worth having the discussion about how it does or doesn't work and, and that's again going back to the sadness and something like this or something like freeway or or uh, other films that we will discuss especially in the horror genre that that to me is I I live for that shit. It's like yes, let's have these discussions. As I learn to get better about not being defensive when someone doesn't like <laughs> like <laughs> right. Well, I'm just I guess uh, I mean we're like more than two thirds of the way through this uh, <laughs> through this episode, but it's striking to me how we're able to have these kinds of meaningful conversations over controversial subject matter compared to say last week's episode incident in a ghostland where we were unable to have that because the film just didn't want to do the fucking work right although i still like that movie (sighs) yeah it also controversial okay (laughs) okay so let's talk about the second ritual where Dwayne and estelle more or less turn on each other because neither of them want to be sacrificed but it all goes to shit when uh, the accomplice from the bank robbery earlier turns up, kills Adolfo, sets the entire barn on fire. Oh man, but goddamn, if Romeo doesn't stick a fucking machete through his skull, and that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because the first time I saw this movie, I actually thought that we were gearing up towards like this was the climax. Like, the movie uh-huh. was almost over. And there's an hour left in this movie. Yes. Yeah. I think this may have been when I messaged you and was like, this movie is two hours and 10 minutes. Oh, you were watching it when? Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that you were just, oh, that's so funny. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. One of the struggles that I had as somebody who likes arcs and like plot driven vehicles is that a lot of this movie also feels episodic, right? It's okay. Let's kidnap the kids. Okay. Let's do the delivery truck. Okay. Let's do the second ritual. And 
some of these things come and go with almost minimal effect on the characters and the plot, right? It's just, oh, okay, well, that obstacle's done. So now we can move on to the next kind of henchman or boss. But at the same time, that's, I mean, I, 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 I know you're like saying that's the point. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, it's showing how little all of these events phase Romeo and Perdita. Yeah, like this barn goes down. We have lost friends presumably a, a source of income uh we've also got the cops watching because dumas and sheriff ford who we've not talked about he's not yeah. worth talking about all it's that not, much yeah. they're just sitting there in the car watching this all go down and not giving two shits but it's like okay the cops are now also on their tail and it's like okay well mm-hmm. everybody get back in the car i guess we should go and meet up with the refrigerated truck to make the the baby fetus <laughs> delivery okay but th- but this baby fetus delivery scene is one of my favorite scenes in this movie. <laughs> of course, a man gets run over by like an eighteen wheeler. Yes! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> so I mean, the gore is great, by the way, mm-hmm. and it's ludicrous. And they, again, like uh, something that. I mentioned once, but every scene is like packed with details, like little details that reveal stuff about the character that just mm-hmm. sort of add flavor to the world. And, you know, an example of this is like when the guy who's, I don't know, like guarding the embryos or whatever. She's, he's in the, the one who's just sitting in the truck for no reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like taking a leak and then everything kind of goes down and people run around and shooting and he, t- he takes a moment to zip his pants back up. It's just like these That's what gets touches. him shot by Dumas, yeah. Right. I wrote in my notes, this scene is pandemonium. Like, And granted, the movie is pandemonium, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like, it's like Murphy's Law where like everything that could go wrong goes wrong in this scene. It is buck wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the moment where you're like, oh yeah, they're trafficking uh, human, human fetuses. fetuses. <laughs> As yeah. if that wasn't the craziest thing in the movie. <laughs> Well, because that's the thing, right? Th- them kidnapping Estelle and Dwayne, they really didn't need to do that because no. the whole point is they are th- – the whole overall arc of this movie – well, I'm sorry. The main driving point is this truck of human fetuses. They do the Estelle and Dwayne thing as like, oh, we have a little bit of time. Let's make sure we ki- kidnap and eat some gringos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like they are just killing time in between jobs. And if they can get a little bit of money from selling these kids either as ransom or right. to, uh, you know, drug crime lords, then all the better for it. Yes. I will say, though, after um, – so after this, this, this fetus truck scene, we mm-hmm. get this – awesome aerial shot following this helicopter down the highway as we're about Mm -hmm. to see all these agents like just looking at the carnage and that's also when boswell's score is kicking in with this really bombastic almost over the top like intense action movie michael bay style music yeah 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 actually michael bay is uh it feels appropriate for the scope of this particular section and i think it's because a lot of the time it feels like we're shooting on the ground right like we mm-hmm. are at the level of our characters so we're seeing a lot of like head-on shots and this one feels like we're really opening the world out but it it could be like oh is this a cutscene from the fugitive it feels out of place but for me in a good way mm-hmm so this is also the introduction of Agent Doyle, who is uh, played by Alex Cox, who, as we mentioned earlier, is a more well-known as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny, he's on the record as talking about Dilla Iglesias' uh, shooting style, because apparently 
he does not like actors a great deal. And I think it has something to do with the way he plots the films. Like he, they're very heavily story storyboarded as Kay said. So actors are just like human meat puppets that he has to like shoot to make the movie happen. And Cox was like, yeah, it was just like a really perfunctory thing where it was like, okay, stand here. We're going to get the lighting. Okay. Get the fuck out of here. Now we got to do other things. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this camaraderie between them because before, before I even realized, I mean, I've I've seen a few of Alice Cox's film, but I films, but I I didn't know what he looked like, and so I, mm-hmm. I the first time I watched this, I didn't know that he was in the film. So before I had made that realization, I had already thought that this film and Sid and Nancy actually would make a really good double because they're both self-destructive right. but genuinely affectionate couples that you want to root for their love even though they're terrible for each other. And Day of the Beast and Repo Man I think are, you know, complement mm. each other really well as too. So I I, I mm. just I'm really into the Alex Cox component and the fact that you know, he, he was only in the movie because he was supposed to be directing Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, you know, yeah. um, you know, just north of this production. And when he was that film kept bal- the production kept right. ballooning. Up. And, yeah. and, you know, he, he they, the studio didn't think he had the experience to, to handle it. But, you know, that's another desert movie, you know, yeah. that, that's Las Vegas and it's kind of psycho um, delirious. It's so funny because I've never seen it and I only know it based on like the, the cover of of the film and that cover gives me absolutely zero desire to check out Fury Loving in Las Vegas. <laughs> I don't remember. It's been since high school, although I just I know I say uh we can't stop here. This is that country all the time. <laughs> I love the lines that we randomly pick up along the way, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking of dialogue, we've, we've glossed over a couple of the prime Estelle versus Perdita conversations, but I do quite enjoy uh, how Estelle will not shut the fuck up as she and Perdita are driving here. And, you know, I think Rosie Perez is really... She's so believable in every facet of this movie, but her exasperation with this white teenage girl who will uh. just not stop talking is... It's chef's kiss. It's so good. Is this when they... Oh, no, they haven't... Yes, yes, they split up. Mm-hmm. Oh, best... Like, the, the odd couple pairings of yes. this, which we... Yeah, we get more of it from uh, from Perdita and, and uh, Estelle. But I also love that, yeah, with Romeo and Dwayne, like, they're, like, having, like, these... Again, they're philosophical conversations and enjoying each other's yeah. company. Mm-hmm. Like, bonding moments. And, yeah, and yeah the, that scene where... So Estelle says, like, you really shouldn't smoke. <laughs> It's bad for you. And that <laughs> that launches her into this monologue about the two times she's ever smoked a cigarette. And it's just like these really mundane stories. But obviously she's like, you could see that she's processing the trauma as mm-hmm. she's telling these really mundane stories, which is why she's just like verbal diarrhea. On. Yeah. yeah. I love that scene so much because she's she's a, I mean, there's so much great performances in this, but that scene in particular really says a lot about the exasperation that she's feeling. Perdita lets her talk, a talker balls off. And then mm-hmm. she's like, listen, you little cunt. If you don't stop breathing down my fucking neck, you won't make it to the next gas station. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these were the moments where I was like, oh, well, I I 100% know that Trace and Kay will, if nothing else, they will bring up these moments because 
it's it's honestly just like hey would you like to see a sizzle reel of rosie perez acting like a fucking badass yeah. that's what mm. this movie is in some ways right she's she's a russ meyer character you know she's this yeah sex pot full of power and control behind the wheel no less yeah and in the desert mm. Okay, so another scene that I thought was really great is this attack sequence between Dumas and the Fist when he figures out that they're driving to Las Vegas, but before he can really do anything, he's on the phone with Agent Doyle, but he gets attacked by this assassin, and he ends up having to blow this guy's head off while he's being effectively strangled. But (laughs) is is it Doyle listening on the phone? Yes. Okay, Doyle... (laughs) As Gandolfini is getting, like, the shit beat out of him by this guy, you just have Doyle going on the phone, what a strange sound. Mm -hmm. Speak more slowly, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That must be the connection. So funny. So good. And, like, the scene ends as as you get to see uh, Dumas just kind of, like, looking exasperated, but also the back of his head is absolutely covered in this dude's blood. Mm-hmm. Well, and wow. the, the the he was wearing a neck brace up until this point, and he mm-hmm. you know after he got hit by two cars, yes, and he gets his head slammed against an, a car, and Ouch. the brake breaks his neck brace. Yeah, he really does just get the absolute shit kicked out of him in this movie. Okay, so yeah, Dumas ends up connecting with Herb on the airplane, but because they don't actually know each other, they don't make any kind of connection. So that's sort of ironic and amusing. So then we do get some nice scenes, which maybe give us a better insight into Dwayne and Estelle at this airplane junkyard. And I feel like if folks were like me and watching this for the first time, you might have spent other scenes being like, well, they're not trying hard enough to get away. So (laughs) I kind of appreciated that we do get this moment where they try to take off and it just doesn't work for them. It's a fun little suspense scene, though. yeah, yeah, we we get to see Perdita drive like a an absolute wild woman. And that's always fun, and it's it's a good set piece. Well, it's also I think to show because the, the reason they run is because Estelle has to like call Dwayne's masculinity into question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's again this is more of a developing scene for Estelle than it is for anyone else. And I love he's in that that like woman's top. He looks so cute in those shorts that he really just grabbed from the store. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, my god. oh my god. And Romeo almost kills him and it is Perdita who mm-hmm. convinces him not to because they might be useful later. Which do y'all think that really is the case or do you think she just doesn't want him to kill him? I think the latter personally. I think at this point she's kind of realized, "Oh, maybe we did these two dirty, but they don't need to die for this." I do I do I think the same, but I don't no, like I, f- I feel conflicted about it because, like, that's how she plays it. I think the performance is is right. showing that, but I also mm-hmm. don't feel like that's the character. To me, it's a little bit of both. To where I'm like, I think she's leaning where like eh, I don't feel like killing these kids, but that's that's kind of it. Like I don't feel like killing them instead of I don't want to kill them anymore, but. I still think she kind of subscribes to the Romeo belief where it's like, you know, oh, like, I'm not planning. We're just going to see what happens. I don't think we need to kill them right now. But if, but if they die, no skin off my back, I will continue to live my life. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's very much of the sense that what happens to other people doesn't really matter to her. Although if they, if, if they do kill them, she could be like, 
well, but then I'll be in more trauma. And maybe I've had enough. <laughs> maybe this has gone fair. as far as it needs to go. <laughs> well, it feels like at this point she's realized, oh, we could score a really big payday if we just kind of keep our heads down and get this delivery accomplished, right? Um, let's not forget that we've also gotten quite a few sort of like nods to Romeo's fatal ending. Like this is moments after he's pulled the card that says right. we're going to die. So maybe she's like, let's just score the money and not tempt fate. Oh, actually, no, that's yes, that's actually a really, really good point. So, yes. It, so, yeah, she doesn't want to kill them, but it's not because of them. She cares about them. It's because she cares about the bad juju they're going to get, which is ironic considering everything they've done. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't want to like to worsen her chances of losing Romeo. Yeah. So when they're pulling the cards, Estelle gets the mermaid, which means mm-hmm. luck. And then Dwayne pulls the clown, which I actually forgot what the clown <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then Romeo draws the skull, which of course means death. But Perdita, she never draws a card, right? She kind of does. Like some, she has someone else draw a card later, and it's a snake. And I do think that, it, that there's been a few like snake references to Perdita, mm-hmm. um, and she's got like cobra eyebrows. But I, yeah, I, I do think it's significant, though. Well, I think to me that's also very much a statement that not only is the movie fucking named after her and this is her story, but like she won't play by the rules of something like fate. You know, Romeo has all these philosophical conversations about what drives him and his responsibilities and like his religious connections. And Perdita doesn't have that kind of stuff, right? Because she is her own master. Like she's the one who is driving the fucking vehicle Whereas Romeo, it feels very much like he would respond to something like, oh, shit, I pulled the wrong card. And now I'm going to start taking more chances. Like, I'll leave Perdita at home and I'll go and make this drop off of baby fetuses myself, which is a sentence I just had to say. out loud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so one of the things that is standing in their way is this looming threat from Catalina, which is a drug lord gangster that Romeo owes money to and is played by a very young looking Damien Bashir. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have needed to be resuscitated after I saw him because I was like, holy shit, he's looking good in this movie. He looks very good in this movie. Even when he's having a broken sh- a bottle jammed into his face multiple times. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, so I'm not gonna lie. I kind of wanted to see that and I was disappointed that we just see the bottle going in and out, but we don't actually get to see the carnage. We, um, there is one very quick shot. It's like in the middle. So like we get him jabbing him a couple times and then we have a cut of, of Bashir's face and then we cut back to him stabbing him more with the bottle. So it's, it's like a mid shot and it's like a second long, if even that. But so you can pause it and see it. But yeah, we don't, we don't have like yeah. an after shot of the carnage. It's pretty gross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, and, and just before then, he, he has a, a line that reinforces the control motif where he says, you have to keep up with everything in this business. You don't know what's happening around you. You're dead. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which is hilariously ironic since he's about to get murdered. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he doesn't know that he's being hoodwinked. Yeah. <laughs> and neither does Estelle. <laughs> he's like, oh, here's and, and she here's $10,000 that I owe you. And, and what was the rest of the money? He goes, oh, she's right here. This is the other half. And Estelle's yes. last. She's like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> 
I I don't understand her responses in this scene. I, again, I have to maybe chalk it up to trauma, but I'm like, girl, what makes you think he is joking about this? Nothing about the way he is talking about you or has ever talked about you <laughs> would suggest that he is not planning to follow through with this. Well, but again, it's a thing where it's like, uh, he'll do it if he needs to. But if he gets away, gets, he's able to kill him, then we're good. We're, we're fine. Like, oh, we'll keep her on in case we need her for later. I don't know. Are you sure that this isn't an attempt to kind of soften the character up? Because there isn't a reason why he couldn't have just left Estelle there and said, my debt is now paid. I don't have to worry about your goons coming after me. I mean, it might also be kind of a reverse Stockholm syndrome, which has to be a thing, right? Where it's like, yeah, the kidnappers are learning to empathize with their kidnappees. But again, I don't think it makes them softer because they still did all these horrible things. Yeah, well, I don't know if it makes them softer. I believe that it was not his intention to actually go through with it. That's what I thought. Like ever, right? Like I honestly thought he was fucking with her most. I mean, like it was that was what he was going to tell him. Yeah. But like he always planned to go there and kill Catalina. Mm hmm. I would mm. assume the only way he would have actually gone through with it is if there was no way for him to kill Catalina and get away, I guess. But I don't know. Also, I kind of think that even if he couldn't get away, he would have killed him no matter what because of what he did to his grandmother's house. Right. Yeah, that is a valid point. Okay, so we're moving the action into Tucson. This is basically where the foursome are going to get, uh, they're going to lay low for a little bit with one arm Doug, who is played by Miguel Galvan. But as they're getting out of the car and sort of like getting set up, this is when Herb, <laughs> Estelle's father, notices them and he is immediately hit by a car and killed. He, and he, he like um, twirls three times. Yes! The, oh my god, yeah. he does a bunch of flips and then we cut to this obscene cartoon of some demon like fucking a woman and talking dirty mm -hmm. to her. <laughs> Like ten mm -hmm. tentacle porn. Yes, I want to say it's Ninja Scroll, but I can't be certain. I feel like uh, somebody who maybe knows their hentai is going to let us know after the fact. I think I saw the title somewhere and it was really long and I was confused at what it was at first. And I'm like, that must be the anime. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> It's a very real thing. I will say Herb's death sequence is hilarious, though. Like that kind of U.S. gymnastics team aerial stunt is fantastic. <laughs> but again, it's like, why? Why is that here? I don't know, except that it's just funny. That is the only reason it's filmed like that, because it is so bizarre. Yes, it's more cartoonish than any of the other collisions. Which I guess maybe that's why then we have the smash cut to a cartoon, right? Well, and I think it's also it's a condemnation of how ineffectual Herb is, right? It's like, look <laughs> at this. Even his death is hugely comedic because he is just so out of his depth. Yeah. And I think it's also like invocative of um, Charles Bronson death wish kind of thing. Oh, where it's like okay. the, the, the white man seeking justice on his own. But and Kay, at the same time, though, you referenced earlier that the movie has uh, has has layers of Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, and this mm -hmm. is very much a, hey, here's the coyote getting hit by a car. <laughs> right, or, yeah, like, um, Romeo has just painted a tunnel on a brick wall. <laughs> or yeah. a, 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 stone, a stone wall, and he r ran right into it. Oh my god, Tucson is just a stand-in for Toontown and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, apparently. Exactly. You know, actually, for, I, don't, I couldn't figure out why, but there were a couple times that I was thinking Roger Rabbit. Because <laughs> that movie is like, iconic gandolfini is bob hoskins oh mm. yeah previous episode go listen to it <laughs> there we go 
So we see Dumas is becoming increasingly unhinged as we're moving into the climax. He is just berating this poor IT person to try to get a better sense of where the truck might be headed. It's all a bit of nonsense, but if you've been enjoying Gandolfini's performance, this is kind of like, okay, one last little tasty morsel. So this is when Estelle and Dwayne put on their sexy show for Romeo as he kind of half watches. Woman, thou art loosed. We also I just really there's one really funny line that Estelle has. It's before we even get the flippy car death, but it's it's whenever she's telling Perdita about the trap in Vegas, and mm-hmm. she just goes, "I know someone named Santos wants to kill Romeo in Vegas. A Mexican man told me before dying." Oh my God. <laughs> See, that sounds like a freeway line to me. Yeah, I, I think she. I think next she says something like, "And I'm not making that up." Like she realizes how. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's like oh that's the sentence just like what Joe said that's the sentence I just said I'm acknowledging how ridiculous this sounds because it is in fact ridiculous it's so ridiculous but yeah so yeah now what we are, we're getting to Vegas right yeah it's the fuck scene and Perdita gets really frustrated that Romeo wants to leave her behind Rosie Perez talking about how Doug only has one arm and how she feels slighted by the fact that Romeo will take one arm guy over her is also very funny to me well I read that as like this is your backup like Mm -hmm. she's (laughs) like not not that like she's offended but that she's just like you need more than that. Like, this is this is your plan. Well, because she's right there, right? And him suggesting, no, stay at home with the kids is the definition yeah. of masculine behavior, right? Like, woman, stay with the kids. I'll go and do the business. And she would have saved his life. I think she would have changed the end of this film. But I mm-hmm. think Romeo knows what's up. I think he knows, like, he, he sees this as his fate. And I think he's willing to go along with it. Yeah, it it feels like his personality changes a little bit in the aftermath of the card. Like he's accepted that things are going to be different and he's now starting to wrap up loose ends. Right, but he's not talking to Brigitte about it. He's not talking to anyone about it. It's just like, yeah, he's like, well, my path is chosen. Yeah. So he does, in fact, go to Las Vegas and Perdita lets the kids go. And then she follows and Dumas is waiting on the city limits. So he also follows. So we are headed for a shootout, a climax. And unfortunately, this is when cousin Reggie does betray Romeo. So as you mentioned earlier, Kay, we get this very like almost eroticized shot of this gun as it fires into Romeo's back. And of course, Perdita has been struggling to get into this building she finally blows her way in and she comes in right in time to see her lover and soulmate get shot in the back and this to me though is also where it's like because i i feel like the it, it's like that romeo michelle oh listen to that sad sad music they won't let her shot but it's like oh her <laughs> he's dead like the mm-hmm. music swells to a point where it's like again this is where i'm saying i care about this i feel bad that this is happening to him and to perdita i want them to get out together in spite of everything I have just seen for the past two hours. It's a weirdly melodrama, right? Like it feels so heightened and yet we know we shouldn't be swept away. We know we shouldn't care, but we can't help but realize, Oh, I kind of wanted them to get away with it. It's to me, it was like, Oh, it's Thelma and Louise. I wanted them to 
go out riding a, a a wave of glory, like go down in a hail of gunfire even. But instead, it's just like, no, Perdita just has to watch this guy get blown away. Despite like all the movie and how its attitude towards everything it's doing. Yeah, we have our Estelle and Dwayne who are, they yeah, as Kay said, run off frolicking in the street off to God knows where. Mm-hmm. And Perdita and Romeo do have a tragic ending. Right. So morality at the end of the day kind of wins at the end of this movie. Yeah, I think the fact that it doesn't feel satisfying tells us everything that this film is trying to do, though, right? Like when Dwayne and Estelle run off into the streets, I'm just like, fucking idiots, get gone. Okay. <laughs> like, let the adults wrap up their story now. And when she lets them go, she does have this moment where she's like, just get the fuck out of here before I change mind or whatever. But when they're about to leave, she kind of does this thing where she, like, bites her lip and looks away. Like, she's like, oh, goodbye, Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> I never for a second believed that she cared about the welfare of Estelle, but I do think that she kind of begrudgingly came to like Dwayne. Her her type is um, himbos, 100%. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we'll never really know because we don't, I mean, outside of the acting, the incredible acting that Perez does in this film, yeah, we don't don't really get that insight to that character. No, and even the end of the film, which feels exceedingly melodramatic, it's just her silently walking the Vegas Strip while kind of quietly crying, and then it's just like, credits. Off to the next adventure. Well, because we are, we get this kind of uh, also romanticized for for Romeo's death scene as the as the the image of the screen morphs into a scene, a shot from Vera Cruz, which by the way is only in the Spanish cut of this film. This did not make it into any uh, uh, US DVD or anything. Oh, that's so stupid because that earlier scene would have no payoff. Then I think it was a rights issue. Oh, I see. Okay, but nevertheless, when he's dead on the ground, Doyle and Dumas walk up to him, and Doyle just goes, "Oh my god." Look at his teeth. And then he just fingers his lips up and looks at his gums and his teeth. And he just goes, incredible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot of comments about like Perdita calls him a dentist, Romeo dentist. Um, She's like, you're not a scientist, you're a dentist because he has teeth. You know, there's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's because a character like him, you wouldn't expect him to have good dental hygiene. Like that's it. That's the film playing on our stereotypes of what someone like Romeo would look like. No, I thought he was talking about his tooth to gum ratio. Uh, no, it's the fact that his teeth are perfectly white and chiclet like. I get it. I get it now. And that makes way more sense. <laughs> yes. Look at this high teeth to gum ratio. <laughs> Oh my god but yeah so uh, yeah we don't really have a lot of closure because even still perdita watches them load his body onto the ambulance as Demas just looks at her and gives her this playful mm-hmm. wave like i'm gonna get you i'll see you later yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and and you know R- R- romeo dies the way he wants to like he mm-hmm. he thinks that that is like the noble way to go and oh, 100%. he says at one point without death there is no sainthood and mm. he has a belt buckle with some kind of saint on it during you know throughout the film so i think this is like his being anointed as a, as a saint and kind of right. commenting on how like our saints are these iconic figures in cinema and it's kind of funny though because i feel like perdita watching him get unceremoniously loaded away on this stretcher mm. and seeing how life just goes on she's like no it's not like that this is just life and death it's like I have to go off and live mine. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you think the movie's because we just follow her as she walks down the Vegas Strip, and then it just freeze frames on her. 
as the credits roll over her back. Well, and and I think the fact that it ends in Vegas is is also telling. It's like the you know this like the superficial nature of Vegas and gambling and mm-hmm. you know excess, but it's also tacky and trashy and everything. This movie is every yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, everything this movie is, and yeah, I you know what, and that is the end of the movie. And I will just say, okay, thank you for coming to talk about this. I love this movie so much. This is a blast from beginning to end for me. It is so funny and obscene, and I love it. My pleasure. Oh my god, I could talk another three hours. Like I <laughs> love, love, love this movie. And Joe, did you come around at all during the conversation, or are we still feeling the same? I mean, here's the thing. I don't. I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just right. not a movie that I think I would ever revisit. Like mm-hmm. as always, I was kind of happy to watch it, knowing that I was going to have a good conversation. But yeah, at the end of it, I was just like. I can see what other people like about this, and it just isn't for me. I think that's a very valid and fair response. Um, I am curious to see if we have any listeners who are watching this for the first time, which I would anticipate, uh, if you're listening to this, it was probably many of you. Um, what were your thoughts on this film? Because, yeah, this is uh, there's a lot here to unpack and a lot here to digest. And um, if you don't know what to think, that's also okay. Yeah, I mean, I do think this is a film that probably, like most films, if we're being honest, But I think particularly a film like this where it is pushing your buttons, it will probably play better on a second watch because you'll know what to expect. But also you might discover some of the nuances like, hey, was bringing up things and I was like, oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, I would benefit from being able to see that in proper context next time. I love that you just said that because one of the things that Romeo says is sometimes it is often necessary to go against the popular thinking to achieve discoveries. He's so smart, that terrible man. (laughs) (laughs) But also don't be one of those people that's like, if it's popular, it's bad. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh, right. (laughs) Happy medium, everyone. There we go. Oh, man. Well, yes, that is Perdita Durango, everyone. So before we announce what we are covering next week, Kay, again, thank you. But let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, so Salem Horror Fest is on all social platforms. And check out SalemHorror.com for exciting updates throughout the year. And join the festival when it returns next April in Salem. So excited. I really want to try to go next year because I've never been been to Salem. So it's going to be exciting. Oh, my God. Please do. It's so much fun. And it's even, you know, everything that happens in october happens every other day of the year i i moved it specifically because it's just going to be a better experience for everyone and salem's a beautiful city and i would love for people to experience it where there's a little more elbow room and it's a little <laughs> more fun and less stressful because i would imagine during october it's pretty crowded and a lot oh my of tourists God. yeah yeah, it's so it's a it's a city population of 50,000 that has half a million tourists descend upon it in October alone. Holy shit. Oh my yeah. god. It's <laughs> overwhelming, frankly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for moving your festival. <laughs> yeah, well, it makes my life easier too, so <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to look at our interviews with other with filmmakers and our monthly hangouts with our journalistic peers. And finally, if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show and us by becoming a patron at patreon.com 
slash horrorqueers. We are now in June. Uh, happy June 1st, everybody, by the way. So subscribe today to, and you'll get all this and more. Episodes on our favorite horror movie posters, the new Micah Monroe thriller Watcher, Jurassic World Dominion, The Black Phone, and an audio commentary on Gremlins 2, The New Batch. <gasps> oh my god. Oh boy. I know. Joe? Mm-hmm. What? are we talking about next week and everyone just a heads up this is very much a me gift movie <laughs> yeah p.s why the fuck are we getting two back-to-back weeks of you movies Dre? um it's because we got near dark and roger rabbit two weeks in a row or maybe three weeks shut in a row. up <laughs> <laughs> this one can be for me so chase gets a freebie <laughs> oh, okay. okay too ceremonious but <laughs> next week's movie might also be for our guest because our guest really really likes this movie as well <laughs> This is true. Yeah. So it's actually a calendar configuration gift. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the live action Scooby Doo film. Yeah! <laughs> wow. Trace, you're really excited. Uh, full disclosure I actually prefer the second movie, but we got to do the first one first, and we'll do the second one some other time. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. So everyone, of course, go revisit 2002 Scooby-Doo, which um, I'm sure has aged very, very well over the past oh, 20 sure. years. <laughs> Looking forward to that James Gunn script. We'll say that. Oh my god. Watered down James Gunn script. So uh, yeah, mm. until next week, we can cross out once and for all Perdita Durango. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.